You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 429. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 9th of June, 2020. In today's episode, the right side windshield of an Airbus A319 burst during a flight over China. A Russian cargo plane suffers substantial damage in a hard landing. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, the bat bomb. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 429 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger, for that wonderful introduction. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter, Emmy Award winner, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Wins. Uh, Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news, and we answer your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot for a major legacy airline based in Atlanta for the last 31 and a half years, and I like to call it Acme Airlines, and... I am joined today by my awesome co-hosts. First up, we have from her lakeside home in the Carolinas, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is so good to see you guys this week. I'm really looking forward to today's show. So let's get on with it. Let's do it. And from his mobile studio in Cincinnati, Ohio, he is a world traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain, and he just sat down in his studio, by the way. It's Miami Rick. How you like that? Nick of time, huh? Uh, Yes, it's the Rick of time. (laughs) Looking forward to another great one. Happy to be back, guys. All right. And also joining us from the other side of the beautiful pond, the Atlantic Ocean, from the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick of Time. (laughs) Hi there, everybody. How I wish I could just climb into my chair like Rick does and go straight on the air. Wouldn't it be perfect? Hey, great to see you all and looking forward to a great show. All right. And last but not least from the northwest Atlanta suburbs, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, good afternoon, evening, or morning, wherever you're listening to this from. And uh, great to be back. Another fantastic. Oh, no, it can't be fantastic. Just another episode. It's going to be just better than fantastic. (laughs) All right. Of course it will be. All right. And uh, let's go right on into the news, shall we? Stand by for news.
Okay, we're going to start off with uh, this from our favorite aviation website, uh, Aviation Herald. Uh, let's see, Sichuan, is that how you would uh, pronounce S-I-C-H-U-A-N, Sichuan? That's exactly right. Very nice cuisine in Sichuan. Yeah, okay. 319, an A319 near Chengdu on May 14th, 2018, burst windshield. Now, this might sound familiar to you because we did talk about this last year, and they have uh, come up or come out with the final report in Chinese only. So now I'm going to be speaking Chinese, so listen carefully. I'm not paying for his beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anyone who can speak Mandarin even comes close to understanding that, I would be amazed. I'm impressed. I, I, really I know your intentions, though. Was not yeah. expecting it. Yeah, but we know what you're saying. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> okay, well, um, and then um, Simon, as he likes to do, uh, kind of has a little rant here. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not an, a rant, an editorial note. To serve the purpose of global prevention of the repeat of causes leading to an occurrence of uh, an additional timely release of all occurrence reports in the only world-spanning aviation language, English, would be necessary. A Chinese-only release does not achieve this purpose, as set forth by ICAO Annex 13. And anyway, he he's not happy that this was not published in English, as I think the ICAO Annex 13 kind of requires. But so the report concludes the probable cause of the accident was the seal of the right windshield. Come on, somebody's going to do seal. Ah, I knew it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the seal of the right hand windshield of B6419. Uh, I guess that was a flight number. Became, or is that the no, that's, uh, tail uh, number? B's uh, China registration. Oh, okay. Uh, Bravo 6419er uh, mm -hmm. tail number. Became damaged. Cavities inside the windshield permitted moisture to accumulate at the bottom edge of the windshield. And due to long-term immersion in the windshield, uh, heatings, power, wires, insulation, low but continuous arcing in a humid environment occur occurred. That was a long sentence. The temperatures caused by arcing caused the double glass layers to fracture. The windshield could no longer withstand the pressure difference between outside and inside pressure, and it burst. Um, not going to go through all the details here, but uh, I think there are more details than we uh, when we first covered this. Uh, apparently, it was a pretty amazing um, explosion, and I think the first officer is kind of lucky that he didn't get sucked out that window. Uh, there are pictures here of the, uh, the top part of the instrument panel, especially on the first officer's side. Um, a lot of it's missing. It to be <laughs> it's, missing. Yeah, it's no longer there. Yes, it doesn't look like, uh, and part of it, I don't know what caused the that center portion of the uh, glare shield to, to move up. Uh, so I hope it wasn't his head that <laughs> hit it and made it do mm. that. But uh, apparently he was um, he was uh, injured, his shoulder, I think. or uh, He had a wrist injury okay. and uh, something else. Um, Lucky he didn't lose his eyesight. Yeah. It's interesting because the uh, so the so Airbus, you know, they, they do everything different. They call that uh, that that glare shield part uh, where the um, the interface with the um, with the autopilot is called the uh, FCU, the flight control unit, instead of the remote control panel, which is what uh, Boeing calls it. And so that tells them if 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 they began a an emergency descent, which is what you're supposed to do, obviously, because you lose you lose cabin pressure. Uh, the captain had to fly this manually, so he had to put his mask on. Disconnect the autopilot, which, oh my goodness. And then, you know, it knows the airplane over uh, and do it manually. And I'll tell you, having flown in China for, you know, quite a bit, um, 
Chinese ATC isn't, you know, exactly accommodating when it comes to uh, anything, really. Um, and so I, I mean, it's, this is an emergency. So I would, I, I would have done the same. You just, you know, damn ATC. I got to get down, turn your lights on, you know, make sure the, uh, the uh, passenger masks, uh, well, they would have deployed automatically anyway with that, uh, with that uh, pressure switch. Uh, I think it's above 14.5. Uh, the solenoid releases all the masks and then you have to pull them and put them on your, on, on your face. But anyway, start down. Um, but what my point here being the fact that uh, the entire flight control unit was gone. So just the whole thing yeah. was done manually, which is just quite interesting. And in, 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 uh, in mountainous terrain. Um, yeah, that, that's a pretty nasty part of the world, isn't it, Rick? Because oh, uh, you can assume the base height of all the ground there is a 10, 11, 12,000 feet. Oh, yeah. And then there's mountainous regions amongst that. So imagine your average mountain jacked up by 10,000 feet. It's nasty. And when we're flying in that terrain, Rick will be very familiar with this, um, there are, particularly when you've got passengers on board who may have a limited amount of oxygen available to them through the oxygen systems that drop down uh, in most uh, airbuses, the chemically uh, created uh, oxygen will last for 15 or 20 minutes, depending on the systems you've got. You've mm -hmm. got to be able to get your passengers down to a safe level within that period before their oxygen runs out. Otherwise, you risk, obviously, injury or possibly even death uh, amongst uh, the wonderful passengers, your customers. Uh, but you can't descend down to... Uh, get to a decent level straight away because you're over this huge plateau of high terrain. Uh, so you have to have escape corridors, which you can fly down, which get you into low territory as quickly as possible so that you can get the aircraft uh, initially below 14,000 feet, but preferably as soon as possible below 10,000 feet where the uh, areas of sufficiently high pressure for everyone to be able to take their masks off and uh, breathe fairly normally. Although even at that altitude, there will be so I can I can tell you from personal recent experience checking mm -hmm. pulse ox at thirteen thousand five hundred feet without oxygen and without pressurization, I can my pulse ox gets down to eighty four percent. Okay, I I, well, how do you person. how do you represent that figure against what is a dangerous figure, Steph? Well, so it depends. Um, you know, it's the amount of time that you're at that um, uh, percentage of oxygen saturation uh, has a lot to do with it. Um, it depends on individuals and their ability to cope with that. Um, you start getting below eighty percent, and most people are going to start having significant symptoms. Above that, the amount of time that you're at that oxygen saturation is going to be. Uh, probably the main deciding factor. I mean, above 90, certainly above 95 is is preferable. Yeah, And that's and exactly... Course, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, above oh, 90, just, above 92, 94, I would say. Anyway, And did you yeah. see that the captain was never able to get his oxygen mask on? Yeah, I saw no, that because it was stuck that. behind his... Yeah, he was yeah. never able to get the oxygen mask on all the way through landing. Oh, wow. So... He, so that, yeah. he was he was he was unable to reach his oxygen mask, and he would have had to release his shoulder harness as well. He felt as though the first officer was in, incapacitated, which would be a correct statement. But in order for him to reach his oxygen mask, he would have had to take the shoulder harnesses off. Okay, Dana, I'm gonna I'm gonna call uh, bullshit on that. I'm I'm sorry, but he means having to say flown folks, uh, BS. <laughs> well, that's what it says Having right here in the, in many the stimulators where you're required to get your oxygen mask it, it can be reached 
with your uh, shoulder harness. It says it right in the article. Not. The captain was unable yeah, to reach Yeah, I, I know what it says. He's calling the, the article is BS or the report. I'm saying that that um, the the Him reason that the captain couldn't reach his oxygen mask, I don't think there are many captains who would have passed a simulator session uh, if they depressurized the aircraft well, the simulator and he couldn't reach his oxygen mask. It's right there beside you, mate. It's by your left hip. Uh, so yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's I, I, I understand like the, the whole the whole thing, the whole premise of the thing is that you know, like I said, the, the guy literally had his hands full. He had to you know hand oh, yeah. thing because you know no no flight control unit, yeah. uh, trying to trying to keep his FO from flying from you know departing well, the, the aircraft. The FO uh, actually was uh, blown out of his seat. Yeah. Nick, yeah. Here's here's yeah. the here's yeah. The, I imagine the there was a mess in the, the oh, yeah. Hang on, yeah. everybody's yeah. talking yeah. at the same time. Go ahead, Dana. Here's the issue that I have with what you're saying. Uh, he was hand flying this aircraft because the the autopilot was completely disabled with his left hand. He couldn't reach. He couldn't let go of the aircraft to reach over to get the mask because the FO was unable to fly the airplane. Yeah. So if you I, had, I, if you actually look, look, wheel, let me, like let me get this absolutely straight. I'm not saying he wasn't in an absolutely dreadful situation. All I'm saying was that the oxygen mask is there. And he could have reached it, but he's using his left hand. So his he's left hand flying the airplane, and his left hand would have been needed to to pull out the oxygen mask. It so yeah, you you have a point, but it's not out of reach, okay? Which is what you said. So well, um, I'm just saying that that's not the situation. So let let's just let's just come back to what was happening. He had had a major depressurization, and the cockpit was near wrecked. He mm-hmm. had no documentation because everything that would have been paper, and we would often fly with uh, paper uh, reference charts, which would give us the escape routes we need to fly when you're in such high terrain and get done. All that would have been sucked out of the cockpit. So you've got to have very good situational awareness. The normal procedures we would use to do an emergency descent, as Rick quite rightly suggests, is using the flight control unit to command the autopilot to descend the aircraft, no longer available since that has been nearly ripped out of the aircraft, along with uh, the glare shield and everything uh, that was on the first officer's side. So he's hand-flying the aircraft in a very difficult situation. But we all know that when the airplane depressurization depressurizes, the only pilot left able to fly the airplane needs oxygen. That's point mm. number one. Point number two is he did a brilliant job bringing the aircraft down. And, of course, he could only descend initially to a safe altitude, which was about 23,350 feet, flight level 235. And that is still very high. Really high. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you would have to maintain that for quite a while until you could step down. uh, The terrain allowed you to step down to the next height and then the next height and and that we do we fly a an oxygen profile it's called mm. where we step from our initial altitude to the first height you maintain that for a few minutes and then step down to the next height and that's the whole point of having an escape route uh, that is pre-planned so that you know where you're going to go to get out of this high terrain so you can get down um, so right. mm. I'm, I'm not criticizing the captain i'm just saying he the situation is very fortunate that he didn't fall unconscious because he wasn't wearing his oxygen mask because he's the only bloke now able to fly the aircraft. First officer can't. He's the only bloke left, and he wasn't on oxygen. So I'm going, wow, these guys 
that's remarkable. He managed to get the aircraft safely down without falling unconscious. And I think everyone's very lucky that this situation hadn't gone side, didn't go sideways. Um, mm -hmm. So what else is it? it the, the reason the uh, the window came out, well, that was bad maintenance, I would suggest, because, uh, you know, the windshields are just windshields. They're the same, probably made by the same manufacturers mm -hmm. all around the world. And if you get condensation building up in the many layers, and Rick will be able to tell me, but it's probably in excess of 14 different layers of, of um, perspex and metal filaments and glass, etc. And if you get uh, moisture getting inside that, uh, that can cause short circuits, etc. in the uh, windshield heating, you can get a failure. And this was a very dramatic failure. So uh, I think the guy is a bit of a hero for doing yeah. it. I would love to have had him on oxygen while he was doing it because I think that was a risk factor that we can introduce perhaps uh, in the subsequent crime with hindsight. But the fact was that he managed to do the the best he could and get the aircraft down and with all the additional failures that would have been happening he got the aircraft safely on the ground so and let's bear in mind the noise on board was so bad that they couldn't communicate between the three pilots that were on the flight deck let alone communicate through a headset to air traffic control so they were doing this all autonomously without the normal documentation they would they have had available too. to them. And, and think about it, initially what, what happens, and uh, Nick will be able to, um, to, to, uh, to uh, I guess, uh, confirm this. Whenever you have an explosive decompression, the first thing that happens is you get condensation. So for the first couple of seconds, you can't see a thing because you have all that condensation. So at first, so you have condensation. All your, all your charts are out the window, literally. You have no automatic control of the aircraft. You're not on oxygen. Your FO is about to fly out the airplane, so it's it's very very dire situation. I was going to touch on two things. One is the um, the, the oxygen systems themselves and how long they last. So you have um, you know 10, 15, 17, 22 minute uh, oxygen systems, and uh, as as Nick was saying, they're all they're all chemical. It's, it's it's the the reason why on the safety video, if you pay attention, you put your iPhone down for a second, they tell they tell you to actually pull the mask towards you because. What that does really is 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 that uh, that releases a lock, and it's basically it's basically like a uh, like a trigger that's going to begin that chemical reaction that is going to produce uh, that oxygen. But the the length of time that oxygen is provided is based on whatever air that chemically produced oxygen is mixing with, which is the reason why you need to get down as quickly as possible. Because I mean the the system will the system will provide those twenty two minutes of oxygen at a lower alley. You won't get twenty two minutes worth of oxygen at you know thirty five thousand feet. Well, and, and the important thing to remember is that that's not really producing a whole lot of oxygen. Exactly. It's just enough basically to keep you alive. Precisely so, right. In looking through this article, it it says that the aircraft had accumulated nineteen thousand nine hundred twelve hours. Uh, and that's uh, 12,920 flight cycles with the original windshield installed in this aircraft that had never been changed. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I I agree with, with everything Nick's saying. It's done really well. And I just want to clarify that the reason why he couldn't get the oxygen mask on was because his hand was on the control yoke, uh, the, the, the control stick, which he felt that he couldn't release because he was hand-flying the aircraft to get the oxygen mask on. I, I didn't say that right earlier, and that's that's 
That's what it says in detail down here further in the article. Now, let me sh share some good news with you. <clears throat> the good news is, is that this is in May. Um, I'm sorry. I just saw this 2018. I was going to say 2020. I was going to say it's 199 people, 119 people and nine crew, but that's going back two years. I was getting excited because I thought it was this May. Not yeah, we already talked about it last year, actually. When yeah, it's and but, the last thing I wanted to touch was was uh, um, flying in flying in mountainous terrain and and the and escape maneuvers and escape routes and stuff like that. Now it's you know having flown in China and also flown in South America where you have um, some of the tallest peaks in the world. Flying in South America, it's, it's a little easier because down there, obviously, you also have particularly when you're flying over the Andes on a north south type route. Um, you do have these escape routes, and it works very much like uh, very much like uh, like ETOPS flight planning, where you have equal time points and certain gates that you fly through, and past a certain point, your your escape route goes one way, past a certain point, goes another way, and you use uh, reference radials from from navigators and stuff to get you down. So, what we would do, what we always do, we did that at uh, at uh, in, um, Land Airlines, and uh, and we do it now with Acme Giant uh, is on on the on the page two. So you have route one and route two in your flight management computer. Route two, you'll usually have your escape route um, preloaded in there, so that in case you do need to um, execute an emergency descent based on you know any type of emergency, the first thing you'll do is you'll you'll this this whole thing is done on autopilot. You'll bring the aircraft off the airway using head and select mode to, to, to break off from that uh, from from your current airway. And then you will navigate and intercept that escape route with uh, some sort of lateral navigation mode and 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 get down using your autopilot as well. Now, one thing that you have in China that you don't have in South America or any other mountainous terrain I've flown over is the fact that in China, just about every piece of airspace out there has got some sort of military value to it so if if you look if and by by that i mean uh, there's there are certain places that you can't fly over and so if you go from say i mean i haven't flown from 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 the uh um uh, the west part of the country to to the east part of the country um there's no straight flying through china it looks like a zigzag you know and it's just there's no way of getting from one point to another point in a straight line and not only that but you have to contend with with um, uh, they give you these weird offsets three miles five miles it's just for, for so it's just just what I'm trying to the point I'm trying to make here that it's they don't make it easy and if you have this to 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 deal with on top of everything else it's just you know the job the guy did was just great unbelievable I, I think that uh, you know total hero yeah I think he did a fantastic job. Um, and I would also add that um, one of the things that happens when the flight deck depressurizes is that uh, the cockpit door, or usually a depressurization panel in it, bursts open yeah. uh, so that um, the lack of pressure in the cockpit doesn't deform the entire bulkhead that's behind the pilots and, and allows the air to escape. Because if you can, if you can imagine the, the back of the cockpit um, the, behind there in the cabin, the pressure is perfectly normal. If the pressure suddenly drops in the uh, cockpit, there's this enormous pressure difference that will just burst the entire bulkhead behind the cockpit. So the, the flight deck door or a panel a part of it will burst open to allow the pressure to uh, equalize uh without the 
um, that whole entire bulkhead. But when the door did bang open, it uh, smacked into a whole bunch of uh, electrical circuit breakers, I believe. Uh, I'm trying to find the bit now. 17 circuit breakers um, were tripped uh, during the rapid decompressurization. Um, So, you know, uh, the... the, um, the design that was criticized, the design of the aircraft was criticized because it didn't consider the force of the impact that the door can produce when it hits the 120 volt VU panel in such a deep pressurization. So top of everything else, you can imagine what's happening behind the pilots. Man. They've got this huge bang. They've got an additional electrical problems now and a vast rush of air from behind them out through the cockpit. It must have been just a nightmare scenario for the pilots. I really do uh, admire both of them. For, in fact, all three of them, because there were three in there, uh, for getting through this safely. It, um, you know, it requires a lot of courage and a lot of skill. Absolutely. All right. Very good. Wow. Got a lot more discussion out of that than I thought we would for our first item in the news folder, but I like it. Good stuff. Anything else to That's say we before do. we move on to item two? Mm, okay. I think then I'll do all. that. Um, just a quick update, the uh, Pakistan uh, 320 crash in uh, Karachi. Uh, on the 1st of June, uh, the aircraft carrying the investigation teams and the black boxes safely completed the journey from Pakistan to Paris. On the 2nd of June, the BEA reported both FDR and CVR have been downloaded successfully. Analysis of the data is in progress. In progress. And on the 5th, which was about five days ago from the day that we're recording the show, uh, the BEA reported download and decoding of both recorders was completed. Analysis of the data is ongoing. So really, and I think I saw something earlier today that they had brought in some big cranes to uh, bring out the uh, the big pieces of the wings that were uh, in the wreckage. And so they're, um, the cleanup is ongoing in that uh, very densely populated area of Karachi. But still no word yet on any of the uh, FDR or CVR analysis. So that's your update on that. We are keeping our eye on it. And last in the news notebook is an Aviastar T204 at Norlisk on the 24th of August, 2016. So uh, about four years ago, I guess, hard landing at 3G. Again, this is from the Aviation Herald. Uh, a Tupolev TU-204, registration Romeo Alpha 64021, performing freight flight for Bravo 9625 from Moscow to Norilsk, or Norilsk. I pronounced that incorrectly. I don't know. Anybody have any idea? Rick, you ever flown in Norilsk. Norilsk. Yeah, yeah, yeah Norilsk, Norilsk is, is good. Steph, you've been there. As most people get. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I have not been no? there, but wow. I'm just looking at the combination of consonants at the end of that word. And I would say Norilsk. I would say that that's probably pretty close, but could you say it with a Russian accent? Norilsk. Thank you. Perhaps uh, all our Norilsk listeners can write in yes, with uh, some audio and let us please, know. We have please. many APG members. In there. Russia. <laughs> in <laughs> Russia. <laughs> um, maybe Vlad, the uh, Russian controller can, uh, yeah, we need to hear in, from in Russia about this. <laughs> anyway, um, let's see. They had four crew members and 25, 25.9 tons of cargo was on approach to Nor- Norilsk runway 01 
which is 11,250 feet long, touched down hard at 3G. The aircraft rolled out with further without further incident. There were no injuries. The aircraft, however, sustained substantial structural damage. Um, again, Simon's a little perturbed because uh, the uh, final report in Russian only <laughs> was discovered Surprise. on the 5th of June. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, it's pr- pretty much the same thing that he put in the other uh, news item. Uh, not happy, uh, not complying, apparently. Uh, the final report concludes the probable causes of the accident w- were the cause uh, was a hard landing of first touchdown 2.3 G followed by a bounce to 1.8 meters, 1. meters height and second touchdown with a vertical a- acceleration of 3.056 G, which led to the destruction of the aircraft structure. Um, con- Contributing factors were excessive speed in relation to the recommendations of the aircraft manual, wind shear at landing, the crew did not have any information regarding wind shear, lack of equipment on both aircraft and the aerodrome to detect wind shear at low altitudes, decrease in aerodynamic properties of the aircraft when flaps are being extended to takeoff or landing positions, probably due to residual deformations of the wing due to excess of operational overloads during operation. Uh, air ground signal remaining in ground position despite the bounce, which resulted in the continued deployment of spoilers and air brakes, reducing the lift by 77%. That's a lot. Uh, landing with a mass close to the permitted maximum weight. According to calculations by Tubalev, the maximum landing weight was exceeded. And the high pitch held by the captain during landing and his incorrect bounce recovery. And uh, the weather conditions were below the required weather conditions uh, and did not permit an approach uh, to, um, let's see, uh, did not, here, let me read the first part of this paragraph. I guess when they were handed off uh, to Norilsk approach, ATIS information changed once again from uh, R to W. However, the first, let's see, I probably should have started earlier in there. I believe they're coming in. They were planning on landing on in one direction, but they had, there was a big wind shift and there must've been stormy weather in the area causing that. And so when they started briefing for the new runway, the weather conditions were below the required weather conditions and did not permit an approach. A minimum RVR of 1500 meters was required required. The first officer pointed this out. However, the captain decided to continue the approach, hoping by the time they would be on final approach, the weather conditions would improve. The captain briefed for a possible go around. That's always good to brief for that. We talked about that on the last show and many, many other shows in our past. The aircraft descended through the transition level. The captain continued the approach on standard pressure until the first officer pointed that out. Oops, that's not good. I want to make sure you're on the proper uh, altimeter setting. Uh, So you know exactly where you are above the ground. Uh, The captain commented, oh, oh, forgot, and set the QFE to uh, 979 on his altimeter. Uh, While maintaining 900 meters, the crew was informed about the 1,500 meters visibility with cloud ceiling now at 180 meters. The crew radioed the weather conditions were now permissible and continued the descent to intercept the final approach. Um. According to the load sheet, the aircraft's mass at landing was 91 tons, just below the permitted landing mass of 91.5. Tupolev, however, computed the landing mass at 94 tons. So they were, uh, according to Tupolev, they were overweight. Um, anyway, so yeah, low visibility, low ceiling, 
Um, winds were, um, let's see, what were the exact winds? Anybody have that available? It looks like it wasn't a lot of wind. Uh, from six knots head and six knots tailwind. Um, so, so on the ground from 350 degrees between 8 and 16 knots? Is that right? Okay. I don't know. Not, not excessive, I wouldn't think. Um, mm. But... Uh, only 700 meters visibility. But okay, that's, so that's okay. You can do a cat one in 550 meters. So. Yeah. The aircraft uh, on the initial touchdown, um, for some reason, uh, touched down at 850 feet per minute. Oof. Uh, Ouch. That's why they got the plus 2.3 G at 138. No yeah. That's going to break an airplane, that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it did. It uh, Structural damage to the left wing spar number two. Mm. That's no good. No. Uh, every time I did a, a, a um, whatever the jet, you know, um, when I, whenever I do a, a, a landing close that ma- close to max landing weight, there's, there's a um, piece of information I'll always look at on Boeing airplanes. You have the progress page, right? Which gives you, uh, just about the, just about every bit of, um, uh, information about the flight, your, your, your time at destination, you know, time over the next waypoint, fuel over destination, fuel the next waypoint. And you go to page two, progress page two, and on that page, you're going to have two fuel readouts. One is your totalizer fuel, and the other one is your calculated fuel. Uh, now, these two figures are not always the same because of the way these figures are calculated. So the first one is obviously the totalizer, which comes from the fuel quantity indicating system, which is going to be the actual amount of fuel that you have in the jet. And then the other one is going to be the calculated fuel, which is uh, measured off of the fuel flow sensors in the engines. And so get the rickets ready. If you have, um, <laughs> if your calculated fuel is not the same as your, there you go. If your calculated fuel is not the same as your, as your, as your totalizer fuel and your totalizer fuel is actually higher than your calculated fuel and you don't take that into account, you could possibly land overweight. And so one thing to always keep in mind is to, go to that progress page two, whatever the equivalent is in your, in your jet and add what your actual fuel at landing is going to be based on that totalizer figure and add that to your zero fuel weight and make sure that is at or below max landing weight. And it can be quite critical because if anything does, I mean, I'm not saying these things can't land a couple pounds or a couple kilos over max landing weight, but if something happens, I tell you, Saul's going to come after you. That's the first thing they're going to look at those lawyers is what was your weight on landing and why were you overweight? So that's one thing to keep in mind. Yeah. We used to regularly uh, tank a fuel to some destinations and we were planned to land at maximum landing weight. And of course, if you took a few directs, you could save a ton or two of fuel, which put you over. So it was one quite amusing trying to explain to air traffic that you didn't want to <laughs> Like what? You don't want a shortcut? No, we want the exactly. we want the scenic route today. Thanks. <laughs> uh, the other thing was we, you know, we we have a, a gross weight uh, readout on the aircraft. So I mean, you can just look at that and go, is that under or over our uh, max landing weight? And just look at that all the way down the approach, going, uh, we really don't want to land. Uh, we're still over the max landing weight, which and and you 
quite rightly, uh, you should never land over Max Landing Way unless it's an emergency. The aircraft is clear to land oh, in an emergency, but in normal circumstances, no. And even if you're close to it, you're quite right. I, I used to go, you know, 300 feet a minute is the um, maximum rate of descent you should have on an Airbus landing uh, if you're over Max Landing Way. I would stick to that unless I had a clear number of tons between uh, max landing weight and my current weight because there's just no point in pressing to test so if you're ever in doubt you know just go around burn off a bit of extra gas and uh, have another go and that'll put you into a much safer uh, position next time around exactly well and that we, we haven't yet well, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. on the uh we we also have a gross weight readout on um well, I, I did on the triple seven on the on and on the seven four dash eight, not so much on the seven six on the seven four dash four hundred, but that gross weight readout, it takes into account. You can actually designate which fuel reading you want that readout to take into account, whether it's calculated fuel or totalizer fuel. So what I would do is make sure that it would be on totalizer fuel, so that's actual that's the actual fuel being sensed by the system added to that zero fuel weight that would compute my gross uh, my gross weight and base my landing performance on that because remember your 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 landing speed or your reference speed is based on your landing weight and you want to make sure when 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 runway is critical and the, and and the uh, and, and the weather is a little iffy you want to make sure that you have the most you know accurate and up to date information both weather wise and weight wise to make sure that your speed really is on point and apparently in this situation, there was, um, uh, Tupolev was, uh, analyzing all the weather and other factors. Uh, there was some kind of a moderate wind shear that they did encounter. And so his overreaction by pushing forward on the yoke, uh, caused the kind of nose low, uh, situation and the high sink rate. And, you know, he was in an, attempting to recover from that very high sink rate when they actually touched down. So anyway. Good discussion. Yeah. Um, it, just in case I lose power, as I did yesterday afternoon uh, because of the stormy weather, uh, I do apologize. It's been really weird watching your video just now because your video was way behind your audio. It, yeah, my video, I've noticed I've been freezing and I don't know why I'm getting almost... It, it didn't freeze completely, like you were still moving. So oh. it was a good like ventriloquist uh trick that you just pulled there with your explanation while you <laughs> were not saying anything on the video. I've been practicing. Yeah, I can see right now that I'm not in sync at all, and I'm yeah, freezing you're a little, a little laggy. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. I did a speed test be, to see what was going on, and I'm up at 900 and something down and 900 something up. So it's not that. Well, I'll no. call just just like just like Nick did a couple minutes ago. I'll call BS on that. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I uh, Dana was showing up with his cell phone. If you're watching the video. Not too long ago, uh, the uh, weather uh, radar uh, in our area. Is it raining pretty hard where you are, Dana? It was. It was thundering pretty good, and it was mm -hmm. raining pretty pretty hard. I yeah. actually had the, the mic muted, mm -hmm. so I don't think you got any in the recording. Yeah, yeah no, we I got some stuff in the area, too. Nothing. Eh, there's stuff just a tiny bit to the southwest of me. But yep. Well, starting to look. It's coming down here in Cincinnati, I tell you that. Wow. Okay, well, keep our fingers crossed. Crappy weather all... everywhere. All right. Yeah, I don't know if it's um, it's obviously not a bandwidth thing. I, I'm wondering if it's um, something on the uh, Streamyard servers or something going on. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not flying. Actually, Jeez. yeah, I'm glad you're not either. I'm glad I'm not. 
or any of us. <laughs> like, nope, Same. I'm done. See ya. Well, I, I'll bet the Armando, who hopefully will join us today, uh, he's probably not happy that he's flying right now. <laughs> flying right now, yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, okay. He's on his way. Yeah, all right. That's okay. Yeah, he's supposed to be finished by six, and uh, I think he's doing the. He's been going back and forth between Atlanta and Muscle Shoals, Alabama, mm-hmm. uh, a few times today. Yeah, right now would not be a good time looking at the radar to try to attempt an approach at the Atlanta International Airport. So, okay, uh, let's get back to the uh, news folder. Well, no, that was it. That was the last item in our news folder. So anything else to say about that before we move on? Um, oh, well, one last thing I wanted to talk about the, uh, the, um, the bounce land recovery. What, what does that mean? How do you recover from a bounce landing? Um, so, um, in that, in that regime of flight, your controls are kind of backwards. So you, you, you control your, your, your rate of descent, uh, more so with power than you do with pitch. And so that's kind of what you would do if uh, company procedure with us is that you just go around after a bounce. Uh, so uh, you just don't try to don't try to salvage the landing because it's a lot harder and there's, it's, it's, it takes a lot more uh, a lot more work really to first establish the correct pitch attitude and the correct amount of power to arrest that descent rate. And, and airplanes like the 74-8, which is you know the longest commercial airliner out there. And then the seven, six, 300, which is particularly um, touchy when it comes to uh, tail strikes. Um, it's just better. It's just better to just go around. So um, you just, you know, establish the, establish the, 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 the go around attitude, you know, put the power in to arrest that scent rate and then just commence your go around by, um, you know, cleaning up to flaps 20 or whatever the, the case is. And uh, once you have a positive climb gear up and then doing the whole thing back around and uh, that's kind of how you do that. Better to just go around than to try to rescue the landing. Absolutely. We can't say it enough around here. You can always go around. Exactly. But don't look right coming down. Don't wait until your socks be sliding on the ground. You can always go around. So I turned off... um, And Nick is jumping up and down, uh, enjoying <laughs> that music. Uh, I turned off my green screen thing. I'm thinking that maybe that's one of the reasons why my video is not behaving. So we'll see. So now there's a beautiful green background. Hope you're Love enjoying it. it. Very Irish. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now we can do this. Here we are, just a few days after we recorded um, last week. Uh, when did we record last week? Thursday? I think Thursday. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, so today's Wednesday, yeah, so that's actually, it's almost hasn't, a week. Well, I don't know why. It just felt like it wasn't that long ago that we were recording. But Is maybe because? it's because I'm old and you know time just kind of compresses, <laughs> I think. Anyway, um, so let's see. Steph, what have you uh, been yeah. up to? Yeah, so a bit of a um, emotionally difficult week, I'll say that. But um, there are a couple high points that I did want to to touch on. Um, I was up in Asheville on Sunday, and as I was on my way to go there, got a message from our community member Stephen Ivy, and he said, "Hey, I'm head up to Asheville for the day. Just wondering if you guys are around." I said, "Funny you say that. I'm on my way right now." So um, he actually 
hung out all day. We met up for for lunch and then went to a couple of breweries around town. We went to Highland and then a new one and the name of which I cannot recall at the moment, Arisku or something along those lines. Um, How was it? But they were both, yeah, very good. Um, I had a wonderful milk stout there. It was, it was very good. Um, had a couple of uh, low gravity IPAs over at Highland Brewing. They have a nice outdoor area on their rooftop. So that was a nice place to sit outside and um, just chat for a while. It was pretty warm and humid even up in Asheville over the weekend. Um, but yeah, we, we were both happy to sit outside and just enjoy the, the sunshine. Uh, it was a good thing he was there because Justice was uh, out for half of the day um, trying to, to visit with his mom who lives in a different uh, part of the state. Um, and he met up with us afterwards for, for dinner. So that was nice. That was good. Yeah, so he was on a layover pizza. then? No, he was, um, he just had a day to take a little day trip, road trip. And, oh, uh, okay. he was planning to go up there. He was, he was craving white duck taco, um, which yeah. I love white duck taco. Shout out, shout out to white duck. Um, uh, sorry, so white, duck taco. white duck taco. Yeah. It's the name of the restaurant. Oh. <laughs> they make, they make these like designer tacos. Um, the one I get is always the mole roasted, uh, duck taco. It's like oh, a you- cranberry apple salsa on it. It's just really good. You had me in Milkstad, I'll tell you. Oh man, that Milkstad <laughs> was so good. Um, yeah, you had me in really Milkstad good. too. <laughs> I love Milkstad. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was a nice day. Um, kind of avoided it because it was kind of stormy in Charlotte on on Sunday, but it was really nice up in the mountains. Um, aside from still being pretty hot. And then on Monday, speaking of Armando, I um, yeah, we only Armando and I live on opposite sides of Charlotte of the Charlotte area. And, um, we're always like, ah, yeah, we should get together, hang out, do something, go out on the lake, take the paddle boards. And we talk about it a lot. And then our schedules never seem to line up. And on Monday night, I actually was up at their place to hang out and, um, share a couple of beers, the pernicious that you were talking about earlier. We had a couple of those and, um, yeah, just nice to catch up with them. I haven't seen them in, in person in a while. So I'm excited that he's going to be there to hang out with you guys tonight. Cause he's, yeah, he's a great guy. So lots of, um, community member stuff going on this week. That was good. Uh, yeah. And uh, I apologize if I um, briefly disappear here in the next 20 minutes or so. I actually have a, I scheduled a work meeting at 530, which I don't think I need to do anything with, but I'm just going to have it running in the background. Or you just, just got to occasionally look at the uh Yeah. I'm occasionally going to glance over. I might like actually you're... just put it in my other ear just to mm-hmm. make sure it's because it's, yeah, if there's some regulatory stuff, I think they're going to be uh. chatting about, which I should probably just make sure I don't need to jump in on at any point, but well, why don't you type in the meeting <laughs> here and then we can hear it as well. Uh, it'll be really boring and dry for everyone here and not aviation related. So, uh, it's even boring and dry for, for the medical side of things, oh, but okay. based on you what go to, you go to Kinko's, get a picture, like a cut out of you, you know, just, <laughs> just move it around a little bit. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to do what the, so it's on zoom, right? Um, there was the, um, the, the kid, uh, some kid for his class that was on zoom. He, he left the screen. He left his name as, um, reconnecting. And then turned the video off. So it just popped up with reconnecting. So they just thought he had internet difficulties the entire time. <laughs> I love that. Brilliant. You're, you're yeah. experiencing network connection. Yeah, issues. exactly. So that might be my strategy. No, I'm just oh, kidding. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I will. I will tune in because it's, it said I was required. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Very good. Rick. So yes, sir. have you, uh, uh, you're in Cincinnati, so I'm assuming we're all assuming that you're on, um, on long call or something right now. So I did a, um, 
so today was my second day of short call. Actually, it was so, oh, man, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because so short call is you have to go to the hub, and um, during these COVID times, thank goodness we actually don't have to sit in the hub. We just stay at this hotel, which is literally down the road from the airport, and so. Uh, if you get the call, you need to be able to uh, block out within an hour and a half of the call. So, so I, I was mistaken then. I shouldn't have said Cincinnati. I should have said Covington, Kentucky. Yeah, uh, Florence actually. Oh, Florence. Okay, but who's keeping track? Ah, um, <laughs> so, so yeah. So what they do is, you know, in the uh, in the in the morning. So right now, I'm I'm doing a short call from uh, nine to four. So yeah, nice backers hours. Uh, so, uh, you know, wake up early in the morning, go do the gym, uh, get some breakfast. And then, uh, the, uh, transportation is downstairs at nine 30 to get you to the, uh, short call hotel by 10 o'clock. And then you just basically sit in the hotel uh, from 10 to four. And if they don't call you, then, you know, you just come right back. Like I did today, yesterday, they had me do a quick out and back to, uh, to uh, BWI. So I did that. Um, and then tomorrow I have one more day of short call. Uh, and then I'm done for, uh, this, this period and get a couple of days off, which I, which I need. Um, and then before that, um, what else did I do? I went over to, um, over to Stockton. I flew from, was it from here? No, was it, uh, oh, it was from Tampa. I think it was, yeah, Tampa. I flew Tampa to Stockton and then Stockton back to here. Um, that's really all the flying I've done. Um, going into Stockton, it was, uh, windy really really windy um really interesting going in there and then flying out of there um Wait, before the you do that a lot of people don't know where stockton is it's in the sacramento stockton, California? Valley, right? yeah. yeah stockton is in, in in california about uh it's it's northern california well not really north kind of kind of around uh same same uh, latitude as san francisco kind of but more more towards the east mm-hmm. more in the sacramento area. valley i used to go to a but uh, every year we went to swim meet there when i was in high school oh, really yeah yeah so uh it's uh you know, Nice little town, you know, the, the good Mexican food. So I found a good place. I had, had some good Mexican food. And then uh, and then flying out of there that evening uh, in, in, in true uh, freight dog, uh, uh, you know, fashion, middle of the night, three in the morning, uh, three in the morning, ta- oh, I was with two 30 in the morning takeoff, something like that. Uh, Stockton Tower actually only operates during the daytime. So at night we had to do a, uh, kind of, kind of what I did on the, on the seventh floor of flying out of Huntsville some nights where, uh, you, you kind of have to, you do the pilot control lighting on tower frequency on CTAF frequency, you know, so you kind of control the, t- the, the lights with your, with your mic. So, you know, uh, seven clicks to turn the lights on. Uh, you have 15 minutes until the lights turn off. Um, you get your ATC clearance, um, on the phone with uh, with norcal approach so you got to call them up and then they give you a uh they give you your atc clearance and right as you're short of the runway there before you take off you tell them you're about to take off on norcal uh, departure frequency and then they give you a uh a clearance void time so basically if you're not off by whatever time they tell you then your clearance is void and you have to get it again and then on top of that you have to do all the you know all the required um traffic pattern calls, you know, crossing runway and departing to the Southeast or whatever it is. And, and, uh, you know, your, your, your normal Unicom calls. So I did that. And then, um, uh, flew back East, um, beautiful sunrise over Denver. That was really nice. Flew right between Denver and Colorado Springs. And I tell you, one of the things that I'm, I'm really enjoying flying this, you know, the, the light twin again is, uh, flying domestically, um, is just seeing the country. It's just so, so beautiful. You know, it's, we have, we have it all. Yeah. 
Um, you, made a, you made a very interesting point there that was, you know, you just kind of not glossed over, but set up very quickly. Those, uh, the pilot control lighting, mm. uh, 15 minutes. That's important. That's an important fact. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. I, I have a friend who told me that one time he was taking off early morning from a place and, uh, uh, about the time that he was uh, in the about to rotate the airplane, uh, everything went dark. <laughs> kind of like in a movie airplane. Like I can imagine. Just kidding. I can imagine that that would be kind of a uh, uh, shocking. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Never experienced it myself though. Well, so the the obviously system has been revamped a little bit where um, they've modified it. So if if uh, five minutes from before the fifteen minutes expire. The lights are going to turn off and turn back on again to let you know that you have five minutes left. Oh, like last call oh, really? when you're going to see a play or a concert? You know, yeah. Turn off mom. Oh, when you're trying to get your last beer? Yes. <laughs> to let you know that the lights are about to turn off. But it was and I, might, I might point out that uh, Stockton is actually uh, in County Durham in England, and yeah. is uh, the Stockton and Darlington Railway was actually the very first steam railway in the world. So I don't know what Stockton you're talking about. Well, well it's... That sounds a lot nicer than the one we're talking about. <laughs> uh, sure, yeah, can you get but... good Mexican in England? Uh, it's There's got to be a couple of good Mexicans there in England, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. I don't know. All the Mexicans we've got are very dubious. I don't know if oh they're any gosh. good ones. I'm sure there are probably some. Nick at AirlinePilotGuy.com. <laughs> Nick <laughs> at broad stroke on a paint, paintbrush, right? <laughs> Yeah, they all know I'm joking. Yes. Uh, I live in Scotland, by the way. In case <laughs> uh, and Nick away. Anderson is just a made-up name. Exactly. <laughs> so, but no, I flew, uh, flew back across, but I came to Cincinnati, uh, got to Cincinnati, uh, nice, you know, uh, uh, got in during the during the morning morning rush there. So a lot of, a lot of flights coming in at the same time. And um, so just as we were flying over Denver, I hear a company airplane taking off from Denver, obviously the morning flight that the, the out and back from Cincinnati to Denver. And he's, uh, he was just ahead of me and I saw him. So we were at 35, he climbed to 33. He wanted a little higher. So I went up to 37, he got up to 35. And a little bit later on down the road, I called him up on 2345, which Nick would hate, but Hey, you gotta do what you gotta do. And, um, I asked him what is, uh, what is uh, descent speed was going to be. Cause we were, I was just 30 miles behind him. So I just wanted to, coordinate and make sure that you know i don't i didn't go any faster than him on the way down so we kind of coordinated that and then uh landed we all went to the hotel in the same van so that's kind of nice so uh no that was that was my week so you're trying to do atc's job huh well the thing is that i the thing with cincinnati atc is um Rick they tend, at airline pilot. At airline pilot. <laughs> <laughs> they tend to leave you a little high sometimes. Yeah. And uh and uh I uh I'm one of those guys that tries to I try to do a constant descent um the whole way through. One because it's you know fuel economy and all that stuff, but it's also because I, I, I just I just like to do the mental math in my head and you know just try to make it as nice as possible. And you know, it's just kind of you know, I, I take yeah. pride in my crap. And so I wanted to make sure that I knew what the guy was going to do so that I could anticipate, kind of plan ahead and, you know, avoid any delay vectors or anything like that. So it worked out perfectly, actually. So, uh, you know, Brilliant. a little, little, little proactiveness. Uh, it's, 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 it's never a that, bad thing. That's no, very nice. Thing. If you've been British Airways, mate, you would have 
poured on the coals just to get ahead so that he could descend in front of <laughs> well, us I, I, and I get in our way. I would have done it before. Going into Anchorage when we fly, you know, with, with a little triple seven ahead of me, I just put that thing at point eight eight. And there the guy, you know, we up here, like, right? He's parked. You want to race? <laughs> and then, Last one there by the beers? <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so, uh, and then if yeah, you've been on the same crew van, you'd have just sat there with your finger up. Going, <laughs> <laughs> so, so back in, and Dana, you'll probably be able to identify with us a little bit because the cruise speed on the C141B Starlifter was 0.74. So we're going from West coast to, um, Hawaii. And, uh, it was almost startling when we saw, and at that time, you know, a thousand foot spacing was kind of unusual, but they allowed that for the Hawaiian routes. And all of a sudden this big giant airplane just suddenly appears in our lower windscreen. We go, Whoa, what, what was that? It's a seven forty seven <laughs> going by us and they are just like moving and they oh, just yeah. kind of go off into the like distance. Calling. And we started 20, talking 20, to them. 20, yeah, we, we were, yeah, they were doing point, yeah, at least 0. 0.86, 0. 0.87, something like that. And they, we were doing the uh, 123.45. Back then it was okay, Nick. Um, uh, apparently we didn't know it was bad to do. Um, and we were having a conversation and they were saying that they were going to be arriving in uh, at Honolulu International about four or five hours before we were going to touch down. And we did not yeah. like that. And they said, well, we'll, we'll try to save some of the, booze at the uh, boathouse that was like the typical pilot hangout across from in, in Waikiki in the uh, western no east yeah western portion of Waikiki yeah. little uh, yeah. uh what was it called the yacht uh <sighs> like a little harbor yacht harbor um club right there on the water little hole in the wall anyway. but it's, it's it's funny to say that because every every uh, every time I've gone you know both uh, to Hawaii to go to the airbase out there or, or across the, uh, the North Atlantic tracks and I'm behind a, who was that? And I'm flying behind some air. Uh, it's not me. Not me. It's, it's me for some reason, <laughs> but it's not my, it's not my phone. It's my computer. And my computer is, is calling from my email program. Interesting. I don't just know. Just checking in with you. Just wow. wants to make sure you're okay. What is that? I, don't know. I was wondering about the green screen behind you. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe going somebody's green. concerned about that. Oh, yeah, wait. Thank you. We're going green. Green screen. We're going green. Green screen. We're going to take care Okay, of I'm going to shut down my email program uh, because it's doing very, very weird things. Yeah. Sorry. No, all, all, all I'm going to say is that... Uh, uh, Air Force Air Force uh, transport aircraft are they, they've never been known to, to to be fast because you know the C17s we've passed C17s across the tracks like you know like they're parked in, in the and the uh and the C5 isn't particularly fast either uh so uh I don't know what it is yeah, I guess uh Air Force uh, the Air, Mo- Air Mobility Command likes to likes to take it easy yeah I think 0.74 was I mean we it really wouldn't go I think the max speed on it was like 0.765 the Starlifter um, and we were always, um, jealous of the C5, which is a big, fat, bigger airplane. And that they were doing like seven, seven, I think was their standard anyway. Um, so, uh, anything else, Rick, before we move on no, to, no, that was it. All right. Captain Nick, how have you been, sir? Anything interesting? Uh, nothing to report here. Uh, I'm afraid. 
Uh, I haven't been flying for ages, it seems. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I just passed the one year since I retired, Mark. So oh, uh, that was, uh, uh, an, you know, an anniversary, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm still going. Um, got the car. Well, I'll try to get the car sorted. Uh, my phone won't talk to the car, or the car won't talk to the phone. Um, Apple are going to say it's Audi, and Audi say it's Apple. So I give up. Uh, and I went for my first Bulls uh, game of the season. So oh, that was very nice. So, uh, no, nothing at all, yeah. I'm afraid. Oh. Um, found a new subject for the next Plain Tale. So very pleased with that. That's going to be an interesting one. I hope you enjoy. Excellent. Hey, can I add one thing real quick? Yeah. Mm. I just have to say um, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank Marcus for Ooh, sending that. a copy of his book to me as well. So thank you very much. This is um there's a lot of pages here, Marcus. I'm hoping there's a lot of pictures inside. There's an awful lot of there's an there's awful lot of small lot of text graphs as well. Yeah, I see <laughs> math equations. Yeah, um, yeah, lots of very complicated equations. Yeah. And when they That's get a, to symbols like great big E's that I don't understand, <laughs> my brain just shuts down. So I've had a problem getting through that. Yeah, that looks like that looks like math to me. Um, yeah. Uh, don't recognize no, very it. excited to read this book. So thank you very much, Marcus. Is that the reason you're a doctor, Steph? What? Because I don't like math? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I'm a pilot. Exactly. No, this is very cool. Thank you very much. Um, and if you don't already listen to Marcus's great podcast, that's Omega Tau Science Omega and Engineering. Tau. Yes. Excellent podcast. Very professional. Much unlike ours. Um, Dana, how are you, sir? Captain Jeff, how are you? I'm just fine. Uh, I got nothing. I really don't. The only thing I have got I've got coming up to look forward to is the uh, the traffic pattern podcast. Derek Vento has invited me to uh, be on his show next Monday. That's what the fifteenth, yeah, fifteenth of June. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, got some good news from our friend in Sarasota, Dean. He's out there actually flying uh, for business again. So that was uh, exciting to oh, have a conversation with him today. Um, and that's really uneventful. I mean, I really haven't. Done, I've been doing the same thing since last week. Boat okay. and sitting around and waiting. I actually have been starting to look over some of the 737 stuff um, to start getting spooled up on that. And, and uh, quite interesting. Well, I need to mention something. You know, Nick is so modest. He forgot to mention that he was uh, somewhat of a highlight, I would say, on um, a show that many people who listen to our aviation podcast and uh, many others uh, probably have this in their uh, podcasting software. And uh, the name of the show was Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase, a flight attendant who puts out a show about once every month or so. And um, Captain Nick sent her some feedback, uh, like, what, three different stories or anecdotes or whatever, I believe? I think there were a couple there. I yeah. Think, uh, I haven't yeah. finished it. I, I listened to most of it, but I didn't know if she was going to squeeze another one in. That's what she said. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, she's, she's very accommodating, <laughs> our Betty. We love her. Good thing that Steph isn't here right now. Yeah, she's probably. Oh no, she's not even in her seat. So, good thing. Yeah, don't tell her, Liz. Liz is monitoring and recording. Oh well. Uh, yeah. So uh, check out the latest episode of Betty in the Sky with uh, Suitcase, and uh, she uh, 
Uh, and we got a nice little plug in for the Airline Pilot Guy show featuring Captain Nick. Yeah, she made it sound like it was my show. I tried to make it. It is your show, It Nick. wasn't, but Come I on. didn't think she quite picked up on that. So oh, my apologies. Oh, no, no, no. No, as, as long as is uh, the show is mentioned, I don't care. You're, you're representing us well. And, uh, so check it out. So it's a very entertaining show, to say the least. So uh, except for the part where this old captain retired guy sends in some feedback. <laughs> yes. That part you can kind of fast forward. I had enough of him already. (laughs) Tell me about it. All right. Uh, Let's see. Oh, I have to uh, mention a couple of things. Um, I should have done this a few shows ago. Um, Our good friend uh, Hamish, um, Robert Fairbairn, uh, sent me, and we we share a common um, uh, interest and that is good good coffee and he sent me a, a real note and a real package actually it's kind of a funny story the, he sent out a couple of packages that day uh, one uh, was a uh, a camera body that he was or a camera that we, he was sending to a, a repair place in new jersey and um, and another package of coffee beans to me and the photo uh, camera repair place got the, the beans and i ended up getting the the RX 1000 or whatever kind of some kind of a Sony camera or maybe RX 100, whatever. I don't know my cameras. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, I don't think that uh, Robert meant to send me, send me a camera uh, because I, I would have thought that he would have given me some kind of, you know, heads up on that. Uh, so uh, we got it all, or he got it all straightened out. He, he, because of the COVID thing going on, they wouldn't allow him to put the labels on the boxes himself. And they said, don't worry about it. We'll get it. <laughs> yeah. Didn't work out very well. Anyway, <laughs> um, I was able to, the photo repair place was able to get it redirected to me and in the box. So you, this nice little airtight um, envelope for the uh, beans that uh, Robert roasted himself. Um, it was in the in the box, and the beans were also in the box, but they weren't. The beans weren't inside this thing; <laughs> they were just inside the box. So it's still really good coffee. And uh, he said, uh, "Here's about one half pound of fresh roasted agaro nanao shalia, Ethiopian coffee, whatever that means." <laughs> Hope you enjoy. Would love to hear your thoughts. And so we, I let him know that his. Uh, I think he's just started doing the uh, coffee roasting thing himself at home and from the green beans to the roasted beans. And it's really good. So thank you, Robert, for that. Sorry, I didn't mention it until now. He's a man of many talents, isn't he? He is. He makes the best, world's best. He and uh, Mark's make the best homemade beef jerky I've ever had in my life. Really good stuff. Photographer, DJ. Oh, yeah. Podcaster. Podcaster. Did you say, did you say uh, podcaster? (laughs) He's one of us, essential, essential worker. And then as long as I'm talking about coffee, again, I'll mention, I don't know if he's with us today in the, in the, what do you call that again? Chat room or not, but Jeff Jet, J-E-T-T and the Jet Fuel Java company in Let's see, it's up in the Seattle area, actually. So, I mean, if it's from Seattle, it's got to be good coffee. Uh, has a roaster, a European roaster, and uh, roasts the stuff up. And mentioned it about, I don't know, maybe about a month ago or more, um, that he had a special 
um, discount code. I don't. I think that expired, but I'm uh, just about out, Jeff. So look for an order from me soon because I need to replenish. Good stuff. Okay, just wanted to mention that. And oh, you know, last show we were also talking about um, uh, one of the last news items was, or the last news item was the the stuff the uh, uh, alcohol based uh, hand sanitizer. And the guy, um, oh, Jeff's here. Look at that. He's in the uh, in the Facebook uh, chat room. Hey, Jeff, your coffee is great. Hope everybody here listening uh, goes to your site and orders some coffee. Again, that's jet, J-E-T-T, fuel, java.com. Okay, uh, back to the uh, hand sanitizer. We we're talking about the, I guess, some static electricity built up and got second and third degree burns, and we were talking about alcohol. And... Um, I think we said several things that were uh, that were not correct, so uh, going to have to give us the buzzer on that. Uh, so to try to bring us back up to above the fifty percent mark, uh, f- saw this on uh, Wikipedia. There are four types of alcohol, or uh, let's see, ethyl, denatured, isopropyl, and rubbing. And the one thing that we know and love the best is ethyl alcohol, also called ethanol or grain alcohol. But anyway, oh, there's I, also, I like a bit of rubbing myself. A little, I like a, that makes it even more special. <laughs> you are legending your own hand, Captain Nick. <laughs> uh, there's also something called synthetic ethyl alcohol, not used in beverages, but you can feel its cooling presence in hand sanitizers and perfume. Anyway, uh, the bottom line is apparently... Uh, all these different types of alcohol, whether they're ethanol or isopropyl or denatured or rubbing, all basically have the same effect when you um, you imbibe them. Uh, I thought that they didn't. I think somebody made the comment about isopropyl alcohol, you know, drinking that, and and uh, I, I was thinking for some reason that you couldn't you couldn't get um, drunk on those types of alcohol, but you can. So I think Dana did. He's the one that said that. So you were correct, sir. Um, and I didn't directly say it, but I, I alluded to it that my hands and my mouth is a very right. Let me say it properly. My mouth is very jealous of my hands because my hands have been getting more alcohol than my mouth has. <laughs> and there are a lot I, of people. I assumed it was because Dana had tried them all. <laughs> I have. Yes. <laughs> um, I, think I do have a drinking. This article talks about. Synthetic ethyl alcohol is not used in beverages because it is kind of tough to convince people to consume something that is made from petroleum. Uh, but uh, apparently, uh, <laughs> well, what, I could have just gone to places with that. Let's see, methyl alcohol or methanol um, is uh, one of those types of alcohol that. Uh, can make you go blind and and could kill you. So there are yeah, certain types. There are definitely there. some types of alcohol that you do not want to be consuming. Right. But apparently, if you you know you run out of uh, nice gin or bourbon or whiskey or whatever, and you want to uh, have something, and you have some hand hand sanitizer uh, laying around, it's not, probably not going to taste very good. But I guess it would do the trick. I don't know. I'm just going to say um, from the HR side of things, from yeah. Pilot Guy Show, we do not condone this. No, no, Please no. Don't drink yeah, your hand you're right. sanitizer. No, but I'll tell you one thing. I was going through Belarus one time, and I'll tell you, they don't care. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention Russia, but I thought, well, that's not a good idea. 
another uh, public the, service the, announcement. Used to, used to, yeah, it used to be a Soviet uh, Soviet Republic. Well, uh, I, I just recall the story of the uh, the MiG twenty five uh, defection that I told once in a plain tale, and apparently uh, their base was was so boring that they used to steal the coolant from the MiG twenty five radar which was almost pure alcohol, and they used to drink that all night. So. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder their airplanes were never quite operationally ready. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Why is my radar overheating again? <laughs> anyway, so but, uh, yeah. I apologize for putting out bad information, but you know, if you've listened to the show enough, you know that I do that all the time. <laughs> so, oh, And we did we talk about the fact that you know, absorbing through the skin, right? I guess it's just not enough to have any effect. Not, not enough to really. Mm-mm, yeah. No. So get your hands out. I see Dan is Speaking dipping his hand <laughs> in hand sanitizer. You can get your hand out of there now. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, it is now time, I guess, to move on to the coffee fund. Have we heard from Steph or is that my imagination? Yeah. Huh? She was I'm first. Right Hi, Steph. Hi, are you watching the screen that we're all on? Now? No, okay. no, I th- I didn't don't remember what you said. The only, <laughs> the only thing is I've got this other meeting in my ear right now. Yeah. Um, oh, and it's okay, actually, right. I did not realize who was going to be presenting the meeting. It's someone I know very well personally from outside of work. We're not in the same department at all. So that's kind of funny. Um, but it's kind of a mass Zoom meeting where all of a sudden, like you just hear like babies screaming in the background and like <laughs> dogs barking. You know, they ask everyone to mute immediately, which you know you should do anyway. Like when it's yeah. a big group of people, but um, as well, people like join in, you hear whatever's happening in their house because they don't realize they're that not never happens here. Yet. And it's after work hours, so most people are actually at home listening in on this. <laughs> but yeah, funny. it's it's all regulatory review stuff. So we're there's there's a whole PowerPoint that I'll review later too. It's fine. Yeah, I'll just I'll just ask my friend directly what he talked about. We'll have a better over. It. Be better. <laughs> what was it, you guys? In fact, I should just do about. that now. <laughs> okay, so yeah, we got everybody. I believe I don't think I forgot anybody. So here we go. Let's do the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community coffee and tea and the java and me a cup a cup a cup a cup a cup yes it is the coffee fund you can put it back up there liz if you'd like the coffee fund is your way to support the show financially and a couple different ways to do that one is the coffee fund classic method and george leslie Uh, gives us a recurring uh, contribution every month. So that's one way you can do a recurring contribution. Thank you, George. And uh, if you want to do just like a one-time, you can use the uh, Coffee Fund Classic method for that as well. If you want to do the recurring thing, um, I'd recommend that you head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash airline pilot guy and become a patron of the show. Now, don't let the PayPal thing fool you. I mean, that's just their processor. You can use any kind of credit card there. You don't have to have a PayPal account. And uh, since the last episode, we have a new executive producer. His name is Dick Miller. He's a retired truck driver, um, 62 years old, and he has been listening for quite some time. And he says that he just loves listening to all of us uh, and never misses the show. So thank you, Dick, for uh, joining and becoming a patron. And if you want to do that as well, head over to airlinepilotguy.com 
slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will too. Captain, incoming message. First item is from Texas and Lashock, reaching for the stars. Uh, interesting turn of events recently with Virgin Orbital's Cosmic Girl setting up for her first test launch, then having it delayed due to a computer glitch somewhere. She did manage to launch the test vehicle earlier today, and he sent this in a couple weeks ago, May 25th, which did not reach space due to some kind of anomaly. But this anomaly. Uh, but this was just the first attempt, and a, I highly doubt they were actually expecting to reach space on the first try. We'll have to stay tuned to see what comes of further tests. Now, do we know if they've made any other attempts with Cosmic Girl since uh, Texas and Lashok sent this in? Not that I've seen. Okay. Mm-mm. Now, no, what's the difference so. between Virgin Orbital and Virgin Galactic? Virgin Galactic is the white knight machine that takes the spacecraft up that people are going to go, you know, space uh, tourists are going to go in. And um, the Cosmic Girl is a 747 adapted to carry a, um, basically a missile under its wing, a spacecraft uh, that will go and deploy satellites. But is there like a separate division called Virgin Orbital? So, Uh, so yeah, Virgin Orbital is the company that has Cosmic Girl, from as I understand it. Okay. Yeah, well, actually, I believe Virgin Galactic is the company. Virgin Galactic is the company, and uh, and um, I thought that was the company that had the spacecraft that took okay. staff. Uh, <laughs> staff, look it up. They'll get right back to me. Yeah, okay. I should probably uh, not uh, ask this I, question I in might the middle add of that a podcast. That wasn't part of either. <laughs> I have a feeling, Steph. Uh, she's pretty good with the Google. Yeah, uh, I wasn't though because I was momentarily distracted there. Oh, uh, she's uh doing her Zoom meeting. She's multitasking. I'm, yeah, this is actually I'm just I'm actually trying to divide all my attention here <laughs> uh-huh. and not there. Yeah. I want to make sure I don't miss something important. It's right. proving difficult, but I'm working on it. Yeah, Virgin <laughs> Galactic is the outfit that has um the uh the specially designed uh aircraft that uh will take a um you know the small uh, passenger carrying uh, a rocket uh, mm-hmm. up to the high atmosphere and uh, launch uh, tourists into uh, outer space or inner space, probably closer. Uh, and Virgin Orbital is the one that has a 747 that launches satellite carrying rockets, and it does so from a high altitude to save uh, fuel on the, the rockets. Okay, at one point that Cosmic Girl was part uh, or was a project of Virgin Galactic, but I guess now they've spun themselves off to a separate division or company i don't know i i heard that branson was going to sell his share in galactic but i don't know so it's your virgin galactic is a space flight company within the virgin group it's developing commercial spacecraft and aims to provide suborbital space flights to space tourists and suborbital launches for space science missions spaceship two virgin galactic suborbital spacecraft is air launched from beneath the carrier airplane known as the known as the white knight two yeah that's that weird looking thing Mm -hmm. with Huge wingspan. But the 747, uh, I think, is in a different company. Well, I don't know about you, but it's all clear to me now. (laughs) Good. Not at all. Clear as mine. Yeah. Clear as mine. Anyway, I'm really very sorry that I even asked the question. (laughs) Anyway, um, Texas and Lashok. 
has a question for us. He says, I think it might be best directed at Miami Rick. There are a number of 747s that have been repurposed into roles that are well outside their original designs. For example, the flying telescope, Sophia, the evergreen super tanker, and the GE test platforms for their new aircraft engines. Do you know of any more 74s in other unusual roles? I know one. Uh, they've turned it hey. into a water park. Oh, darn it, Nick. You, <laughs> you blew my surprise. Oh, did I? Yeah. Sorry. Shoot. I was actually going to mention that one out in Oregon, the Evergreen one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think everybody thought of that. Here here we go. Yeah. Let me, uh, actually, I was going to say, speaking of Sophia, um, it's yes. in Marcus's book. Mm. You should go get it. That's right. He, uh, he actually went on um, yeah. Sophia. Went on Sophia. Mm-hmm. Play. Welcome to the Wings and Waves Water Park. This is literally what I came here for. Look at that. 747-100, one of the first 747 models ever made. I'm just fascinated. Guys, a little bit of little jittery. I guess that guy has had too much caffeine. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a video. This uh, this kid is very excited to uh, see the 747-100 um, model. By the way, which airline did it fly for first? Oh, that one? Oh, man, you got me. Uh I have no idea. Uh, What's going to Nope. D- Pardon? Did you say? J-A-L? No. D-A-L. D-A-L. Delta Airlines. Oh, oh it did? Really? Yeah, from 1970 wow. through 1974. September 70 through September of 74 uh, was that uh, actual 747. And then I uh, think China Airlines flew it in Pan Am and then eventually uh, Evergreen Cargo. Yeah. Well, I can think of another 7.4 that's uh, pretty unique. There's only four of them in the world, and I've flown all four. The uh, the Dreamlifter. Oh, yeah. Good point. It's a very, mm-hmm. very particular 7.47. A little bit slower, but uh, still, you know, pretty fast and for an airplane. And ugly. It's prettier than that Beluga, I think. No, no, that's pretty. That looks like, what? That looks like a whaley. Oh, it looks my. like a big dolphin, well, lovely, smiley mammal thing. I mean, if you paint. Yay. Eyeballs and a little smile on any aircraft. You could just use your imagination. Very, very, very Airbus-y. Yeah, you have to, you know, put a little bit of cartoon on the thing. But uh, well, that's right. It is like a, <laughs> it's like I don't want to put you to sleep, and you know, inside your dream lifter. But uh, um, do you find me attractive, Nick? <laughs> uh, in what way, Jeff? In any way. <laughs> yes, I find you. I you've got a lovely soul. Oh shoot! I was hoping you would say no. <laughs> okay. Oh well. What else That'll do we teach have? You? you did not make my case. You're trying to catch me out, aren't you? <laughs> have they? Um, I don't know if they've actually can't remember if they've done this with any seven fours, but um, like aircraft that are underwater that you can dive. Is it is a seven four one of those, or is it something different? Mm, no, there's there's a seven six that's, that's that, and then the, I don't think oh. they've made it out of seven four. But you know, famously seven four is this Air Force One. Then you have the mm-hmm. uh, Doomsday plane, obviously, and then uh, it never did fly. It, it really never got off the drawing board. But there was a there was a plan to make seven forty sevens Air Force seven forty sevens airborne uh, aircraft carriers, small little carriers that would. Um, be in the uh, in the in the main deck area there and uh, launch and recover in flight. So uh, oh, it's right. it, it's a you know the, the the possibilities with the seven four it's just endless because it's so big and so versatile and, and so you know it's just a great aircraft. It's you know fifty 
years later, it's still in production. That's I'd almost something. call it the queen of the skies. You know, you'd, uh, you'd almost, uh, you'd almost say that, I think. <laughs> and actually it is in Bahrain. It's a seven, four, seven. I was trying to find it, but I, I knew there was seven, four, seven to go dive. I think there are, take that trip, Dana, at some point. I think there are a few of them being converted into taxis in India. Um, oh so, oh, there's a uh, there's one as a hotel in uh, that you drive past in Amsterdam, and there's a couple of them actually. Oh, okay. Can I go back uh, to the taxi? How is a 747 a taxi? <laughs> <laughs> well, everything else is made into a taxi in India. Oh, I see. Okay, well, yeah, beer cans. Then I guess you could say. Right uh, here, there's probably. a use for one. Those right tuk-tuks—they're probably made, all made out of old 747s. <laughs> all right, please ignore Captain Nick. <laughs> okay. Uh, also, uh, Texas uh, and Lashok continues. I ran across another video giving an overview of fourteen—a fourteen billion dollar renovation currently underway at LAX, sorely needed. I think I'm not the only one who would say that. It seems to make. Particular note of the planned people mover that will provide direct connection to the metro rail and make um, make it much faster to get around the terminal loop, which if you've ever been through there, you know, is constantly clogged with traffic. Yep, I have experienced that many times. I did find it a bit ironic how they were touting how it would be able to handle aircraft such as the A380, but right now it's looking like that will be a moot point by the time Los Angeles Olympics roll around. Anyway, that's oh, uh, that is if Los Angeles is still around. Uh, anyway, that's all I've got for now. Smooth landings for all. This is Texas and Lashock signing off. Oh, uh, John Jester says they uh, they've had airborne lasers uh, that were oh. designed to shoot things down. They was mounted in a seven forty seven big turret right. on the top or something, wasn't it? Cool. No, the uh, the nose, the nose, instead of the radar, huh? Uh, uh, okay. Rotate, you know, nose section there that oh. has the. Uh, the laser Brilliant. very cool uh, yeah well i'm sure that uh we may get some feedback from people saying hey you forgot about this use of the 747 mm-hmm. thanks i mean Tex- for an aircraft that's been around for so long i'm sure there's yeah quite a few yeah i'm sure you're right taxes all right david no i don't think that's one <laughs> david what were, what were you doing about the bs flag earlier <laughs> that one at you Fair you know, enough. I feel like I have a big editing job ahead of me. On this show. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> uh, luckily, we're all on separate tracks. Well, not all. I'm on a separate track from you all, which is good. Uh, David says, or writes in, uh, thank you for answering my sunshine evasion feedback on APG 425. On the show, you mentioned trying other podcasts to relieve the symptoms of the APG syndrome. Hmm. When one has been wearing silk all this time, can one really switch to polyester? Ooh, thank you. Very nice compliment. Yes. I have another aviation question, but to get there, I need firstly to divert us onto the roads. I live in central Birmingham in the UK, so I'm used to high volumes of traffic, complex road layouts, and somewhat erratic behavior from fellow drivers, especially one Captain Nick Anderson. However, I've found that after driving along the motorway for an hour or more, I often feel overwhelmed when arriving in a new town. I see you in my in the corner of my eye. It's as if the cognitive load is too high after having spent time concentrating on only a very limited sense, set of problems on the motorway. Suddenly, I'm in a new area dealing with sat-nav directions, weird roundabouts, pesky ped- pedestrians, and trying to scale back my perception of my own speed. 
It's difficult to describe, but it's a feeling of the brain being slightly behind events and in a solely reactive and not anticipatory mode of thinking. I believe air traffic controllers might refer to a similar situation in their world as, quote, losing the picture. Do pilots sometimes get this feeling when, having spent an hour or more in cruise, your workload suddenly jumps up again? Aside from briefing about th- uh, ahead about threats, do you have a mental focusing technique to prepare for descent and landing? What part of the flight demands the highest cognitive load? Have you or have any of you had simulator sessions when an emergency situation has overloaded you? No, never. <laughs> and your crew. And you've been left with events racing away from you. Alas, this feedback has been so long that I've had to redact all the usual great praise for the show. <laughs> oh, darn. Well, that first paragraph was pretty nice. Though. He started with good praise. Yeah. yeah he, apparently he didn't redact it well enough. Wishing you all top seniority hotels that offer in-room dining and unlimited airline solvency. <laughs> David. Very good. I like that. Maybe we'll, we'll adopt that. Instead of clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. And like in these times, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, uh, what do you think? How's that offer in room free, uh, free in room dining? Dining there. That's even better. That's mm. Way better because in room dining in a hotel is expensive. Uh, so, what 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 do you say? Is there something that we do to help us think ahead about uh, threats and focusing on what is? I think all of us would agree probably the most demanding part of the flight, which is the approach and landing phase. I think we all kind of, uh, mentally kind of, kind of like what I, what, what I did with ATC the other day here coming into Cincinnati, you, you always, at least I think we all, you know, pilots being type A personalities, we like to have control of as much as possible. And so, um, we we're always thinking ahead and thinking of, you know, how certain scenarios might play out based on, you know, decisions that we make, uh, early on. So, um, I, I wouldn't say that, uh, that there's a trigger really to, to get you, you know, to kind of, you know, get your hamster going in your head. I think, uh, your hamster's always going, I'll be a little slower in the cruise portion of it, but that doesn't mean that you're not thinking about, you know, constantly getting updated ATIS or, you know, uh, uh terminal information, uh, weather at your destination, you're looking at your, uh, your alternates you're looking at alternates on route um so uh it's not like it's not like you get to top of climb and you know you you, you kind of shut down and, and start uh, watching movies you know you're always playing some kind of scenario off in your head uh and 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 kind of going over what your options are and how you'd react should a you know situation arise so uh, that's kind of how i look at it uh, you know from uh Aside from briefing ahead of uh, about threats, familiarity is a good one. Um, being somewhat familiar with where you're going, what you're doing, and part of that is being familiar with with the op specs. Uh, <clears throat> for our company, we have this uh, the special pages that will go through those and, and kind of review. Well, not kind of, but review uh, specific specific operational procedures at specific airport. Um, so yeah, you kind of brief those, but it's also good to know. Um, ahead of time, what your plan is, you know, as a, as a captain, I, I agree with Rick. I was always thinking ahead, trying to figure out, you know, what's my contingencies, what's my fuel, what's my, you know, we talked about earlier landing overweight with fuel. Am I going to be overweight at landing with my maximum uh, landing weight? Um, all those types of things you always have to be on top of and, and be considerate of, uh, as far as, uh, um, anything that's going to happen sent and landing. And that's really true for all stages of flight. You always, 
you know, we talked about it, I think, in the last show. And, you know, and takeoffs, takeoffs are actually optional. You're always planning for an abort, always thinking about an abort or a go-around. You're always thinking about a go-around. Uh, so landing is an option. Um, and so you're always trying to be ahead of the aircraft every every way. Now, he did ask, uh, has there ever been a time when you're behind the airplane, I think, right here, a workload suddenly jumps, uh, jumps up again? Um, you know, <clears throat> to be honest with you, when I first learned how to fly uh, an, a, uh, an airliner, um, believe it or not, when we took off from Atlanta and landed in Macon, Georgia, I was still in Atlanta mentally. I mean, it, just, it, just, it was just, it happened so yeah. fast. Um, and that's, you know, goes, you know, along with the simulated sessions, you know, when you first get into an airplane, uh, when you're first kind of getting used to it, everything happens real fast. And then you, as you get towards the end of your simulator footprint, which I'm going to be getting ready to do here, uh, things start to slow down and you get to really think about things and, and start to real, you know, re be able to react because you're getting familiar with where the switches are. It's kind of like if you rent a car. Right. If you rent a car versus driving your own car, if you go to a rental car and you've never driven this vehicle before, you have to figure out where the windshield wipers are, with you know how to turn turn it on, you know, stick the key in, you press the button. How do you turn on the radio? How do you how do you turn on the lights? Blah blah blah. All yeah, these why, things. You have why can't I figure out how to turn on this car? I'm, I'm, I'm um, turning the key exactly. and it's nothing. The most, one of my most embarrassing <laughs> moments ever. I'm going to say was in a rental car that I was not familiar with. I got in the car, just, like turned it on, adjusted everything. Well. I think I got to all that stuff. And I'm like, where is the adjustment for the seat? Like I could not figure out how to move the seat forward. So I was closer to the pedals. Um, I'm like looking, it's like not in front of the seat. It's not on the side. It's not an electronic one. There's not a manual one. Turn off the car to go back into the office. And I'm like, hi, um, <laughs> I am <So>. a <laughs> highly educated person. And I Trust cannot me, figure really. out how to adjust the seat in this car. Cause it was on the door. Oh, yeah. wow. That's Which weird. I actually should have looked for because we own a car that has the seat adjustment on the oh, door. Oh, stuff. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah. The, por the Porsche does. How on earth would you wire something into the door which has to move backwards and forwards all the time? I'm yeah, that's I don't know. So, so Dana, <laughs> sorry, I interrupted you there with the, yeah, uh, but when you said yeah. that the rental car thing, it just brought me right back to that. Well, it, it, you know, it hits, <laughs> hits home because I actually use it in the scuba diving world as well, because when, you know, we're trying to get people to buy their own equipment or get into their own equipment, it's the same scenario, right? So you get into the rental car and by the time you turn the rental car, you feel a lot more comfortable with it. But when you get into your own vehicle, you know exactly where everything is. Your seats adjust exactly how you want it, and blah blah blah. So that's kind of how it is when when you going through the simulator sessions. Is you never get fully comfortable, but you finally get somewhat comfortable, and that's uh, you know that's how I find that I can mitigate some of the threats is just being familiar with the aircraft, and and that, you know that's the point that Jeff and I got to in the simulator. I'm sure in the, our sim world is we didn't know exactly what was coming. But we knew the aircraft inside and out, and we could really well manage it really well versus when I was first learned to fly the uh, MD-88 in the sim. I was, uh, the term would be something, holes, and in, in elbows. And so, you know, even though I knew the airplane really well, still there were situations that would, would jump up that I just, I just, you know, I was like, oh, my God, what am I doing here? So that's just my long answer to that. There's a lot of stuff that you can do on, on short sectors and haven't flown them. You know, we used to do a, uh, on the seven, six, we used to do a, a 
about a 40 minute flight from Rio de Janeiro to Sao Paulo, or there's another little short flight that we I did quite a bit on the seven four from London to uh, Frankfurt or Luxembourg or from Amsterdam to Frankfurt or whatever. Um, these flight sectors are so tiny and the workload can get so, so heavy that there's actually a lot of things that you can do on the ground before you even take off. So what I would do a lot of times is obviously get the ATIS of the terminal information weather for the uh, destination airport and figure out your landing analysis, your, your landing assessment, your landing numbers, you know, before you even leave the ground, because, you know, your the weather's not going to change because you're not, you're, you're going to get there before a new weather report comes out anyway. And, uh, and, uh, you, you're ahead of the curve that way. And that way you can just, uh, you know, just focus on the flying and flying the, uh, the, uh, the departure procedure and the arrival procedure. And so, uh, it's really, if, if, if you get, uh, if you get behind the airplane is it's it's because you kind of let yourself get behind the airplane you have to you know flying is always of course flying is about is about getting from point a to point b but uh really being being a pilot and being a professional pilot at that is 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 managing the flight deck managing your time and prioritizing and planning ahead so um that's that's really what i wanted to say about that yeah using all your resources mm-hmm. um excellent and, you know, today's systems at most airlines in most parts of the world um, set up with our required briefings um, and checklist procedures and everything else go a long way to kind of helping us uh, manage expected and, and sometimes unexpected um, items or things happening. I'm sorry. I was just distracted because all of a sudden my iPad is doing something strange. It's just like one of those days where the... Uh, is- any of the electronic equipment functioning? Well, it might be appropriately. yesterday. I'm so glad we didn't do the show yesterday. Uh, number one, because no Rick wasn't going to be able to with us, uh, be with us. But the second thing is because the power went off and on, cycled off and on maybe 25, 30 times. Uh, in short. Wow. Yeah. And it was, um, yeah. So I'm sure that might have something to do with it. And my, my MacBook, uh, the one that I'm running the show off of, um, I think it was not happy with it. So anywho, um, all right. Well, thank you very much, David, for submitting uh, the question and thank you for the, thank you for the nice compliment at the beginning of your feedback. We do appreciate that. We know you're lying about it, but we still appreciate it. Um, item three, Justin, uh, says, sorry for not including Miami Rick in my collection of mental images of you. <laughs> Remember, uh, Rick, were you on the show when we talked about, he had the, um, uh, he, he pictured, um, uh, he thought I was Heidi Klum, looked like Heidi Klum. Heidi Klum. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, he, he apologizes for, for not oh, including you in that. He, he said, but I, uh, I figured I'd rather not include Rick since everybody knows pictures of Florida man from the news. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. I don't know what that means. Justin's but. kind of mean. Um, thankfully, thankfully that is not what Rick looks like. <laughs> yes. To set the record straight in the last show, you thought I was a cargo pilot. I'm not a pilot. I have an honest job. Ouch. (laughs) We're just going to have to throw away Justin's feedback right now. Justin's really mean. He was in the chat room earlier. Uh, The picture on Facebook is... We kicked him out. (laughs) Permanently banned. The picture on Facebook is fake. Photoshopped myself in a Pan Am uniform. Hmm. Uh, A little catch me if you can. Exactly. A little homage to uh, Frank Abagnale. I like it. Mm Mm-hmm. 
In this reality, I work in uh, management of the cargo division of an at a German airline. Actually, the best airline in the world. <laughs> I beg to differ. Hmm. Not sure if there's already a name for it. Yeah, we have a name for it. <laughs> um, maybe you want to put out an official name guide with all the airline names and their corresponding APG names. <laughs> now, we should actually do that. That'd be yeah, good. but you know, there's some that we have several. Well, I mean, names we don't for. have to. You don't have to. Um, say what the real airline name is, but you can just put the list of all the uh, fictional airlines that exist in the APG world. For, uh, he flies for Deutsche Acme. Deutsche Acme. Acme Deutsche. Acme Deutsche. That way I would finally know which carrier I work for. Uh-huh. <laughs> there you go. Uh, now you know, sort of. Or Acme Red Balloon. Isn't mm. that what that means? Lufthansa? No, it's not. No, no. It's something else. Okay. <laughs> Definitely not. No, no. Send your hate mail. I, 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 I don't know what I'm talking yeah. about. Sorry. The 80s. Okay. Also, I was wondering if there are any interesting names you know uh, for. Uh, uh, <laughs> also, I was wondering if there are any interesting names you know of for certain routes. For example, the Bangkok flight, as a lot of people go there to enjoy themselves, was nicknamed the Tripper Clipper. <laughs> And I heard that the Galapagos flight of a South American airline is referred to as, quote, the flight of no return, as it's okay to non-rev there. But due to the weight restrictions, they have to leave behind a lot of non-revs, sometimes mm-hmm. for days and days. All the best, Justin Beaverhausen. Nice beaver. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Okay. Well, we have fun here, don't we? Yes, we do. Yeah. yeah. Groundhog Day used to be uh, on Narita Run because you, when you get there, you always did exactly the same thing every time you went there. Well, go to the Raymond place. Yeah, oh, I was the out there place. for lunch, but oh, we yeah. were always uh, uh, down to the Flyers Bar and then off to I don't know the, uh, the Spiral Staircase or whatever you like to call that place, and then up to the barge. And oh, there's only about six places we all went to. Yeah. Yeah. So the same cruise there all the time. Jet lag bar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is that the bar they have all the airline related uh, stickers all over the yeah, plaster? The jet, place? jet lag's good bar, actually. It's run, yeah, by, it's it's run by a Dutch bloke. But and we yeah, always used uh, to end up at the truck when it was, he was uh, a uh, he was a flight attendant for uh, Sabina, actually. Uh, ah, okay. Yeah. He had a lot of lot of uh, paraphernalia all around the walls. It was very good. And yeah. we always ended up at the truck or as the Americans call it, the trailer. <laughs> but uh, uh well what was it a trailer or a truck uh it was the well it used to be the original was the back of a truck which, we which would have been the trailer yeah but, but yeah it's a bit specific really well that's just the way we are that's what <laughs> all right speaking of specific john wants to ask us about summer operations in psp Palm Springs, to be specific. Hello, uh, APG crew. I live in Palm Springs, California. Temperatures get up to 123 degrees in the summertime. I've never spoken to anyone that has ever had a flight canceled because of the heat. We are only about 300 feet elevation. Runways are long enough for military maneuvers and the presidential jet to get here two or three times in the last five years. I've always wondered if the planes themselves ever get tested to that limit during flight testing before they are delivered to the airlines. Are there any limitations by Acme Airlines to operating in this environment? I know only 
Acme Jr. flies here all year round, but there is service seasonally with big Acme to its hubs. I'm a retired medical doctor, but I've always loved aviation since childhood. Your podcast is a mental health saver during these times. John Guagenti, maybe. I I wish it saved my mental health. (laughs) I feel like it's having a negative impact on Nick's health. It's very Uh, distressing for me. (laughs) So before we, we do have an answer. Probably more than one. I was going to just help out Nick real quick. Yeah. 123 degrees Fahrenheit is like 53 degrees Celsius, just in case. It's it's very hot. Damn hot. That would melt your tires, wouldn't it? Hey, we have, uh, I have to introduce somebody just came in to the uh, APG studios. Come on over here and get to my right. And let me turn your microphone on. And he's going to plug in right here. He as you can see, is an airline pilot for an undetermined airline. <laughs> he hasn't removed his wings on yet. <laughs> so. Once he undresses and takes off his, uh, and you're, uh, his Lego-covered underpants. So you can adjust your, the appropriate volume there. Can you hear anything? Uh, yeah. Okay. He hasn't said a thing since he's walked in. I'm <laughs> not sure. Can you, the can pose. You, it's yeah, okay. I, you don't mind putting, having your wings on. Yeah, Maybe you should. Yeah. Well, you can. Okay. They're just generic wings. They're made in uh, a China country in the Far East. In China. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here. Let They're me, like the kind that you can like pick out of like a, you know, a toy thing with the, the crane. Yeah. Well, that's where I got them. So that, this, that, or the, that or the gumball machine for 25 yeah, cents. That's, uh, yeah. This is Armando, who is one of the hosts of the wildly popular Plain Talking UK podcast. He is the American representative, and he represents us well, I'd say. And uh, Armando, uh, you are obviously uh, in the Atlanta area. Yeah, that's it. I, uh, just uh, last month, I was we have microphones down here from <laughs> moved uh, down to Atlanta from Pittsburgh. So. I'll be hanging around your back porch or something. Oh, excellent. Okay. Oh, darn it. Now he knows where I live. Hey, hey Armando. Yeah. Armando, you're welcome on the boat anytime, brother. Hey, that sounds great. I think I needed a boat driving up here. Y- y'all got some rain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's storms and then there's Atlanta storms. My goodness. Did you uh, Did you get to play in some of the thunderstorms today? Yeah, that was most of today was just dodging thunderstorms around. And I got to admit, it's kind of a... Uh, yeah. You're going to have to like be a little bit closer to me so we can fit in the, uh, here we are here. You're the one that smells good. I, I no, you smell great. You smell like uh, jet fuel and aviation. <laughs> I'm not sure what that smells like. <laughs> and, and broken toilets. Usually it's like. And broke, broken toilets. <laughs> Is his volume okay, by the way? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay, good. All yeah, right. no, it's uh, it, it's fun. It's it's always been kind of a dream for me to fly into big airports, and getting a chance to fly into Atlanta uh, pretty regularly is awesome. And you guys aren't kidding; those controllers are great, and they they really are thinking about everything you're thinking about as you're coming in, except they're a step ahead of you. Right. It's uh, one of the few places, and I think anybody who has flown into Atlanta would agree, except for maybe the Brit, that uh, our controllers are really good <laughs> at. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I didn't say who I'm I'm not talking about anybody specifically, that guy right there. Um, But uh, they, you know, I've been doing it now for what, 31, almost 32 years. And you get to the point where, you know, you're, you're looking at your radar and you're looking at the red cells and you're going, and then you're pointed right at it and you go, does, 
do they know that we're about to fly into? And then before you get there, they give you a, I mean, it's after a while, you trust them to know that all of this is out there and they know exactly how to thread you through everything. So that's it. It was exactly that today. I mean, it was probably five seconds before you're about to hit the, you know, the, the push to talk switch to ask for a deviation and they'll, they'll give you one in the exact direction that you were just talking about. It's uh, really good. Yeah. Even the newer ones, you know, the, the old heads were great and the newer ones that have replaced them are, uh, pretty darn good as well. Yeah, so. they're, they're, they're great. But, uh, I did get a chance to listen on the way up here. So I think Virgin Galactic 747s are beautiful talks, toques and toboggans and the taco run. Okay. I'm caught up. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> but, they, but all you did was just say these things. It, what do you mean? Do you uh, need to clarify or something? Well, all four of those are uh, show title episodes. Oh, a show title. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We think you should have come on wearing a toboggan, though. That would have looked really good. Armando <laughs> um, can probably confirm with me that was that's what they call it in the South, a toboggan, right? Have you heard that term? Uh, yeah, knit cap. I, I, yeah, I've yeah, lived yeah. all knit cap, toboggan. Okay. Yeah, I've heard it. Huh. I had a lot of skepticism from the chat room about that one. That Still like, not believing no. it. Yeah, I've heard of it. I definitely did not need one today. It is. It's uh, it's Atlanta hot out there. So, yeah, awesome. Uh, so, t- uh, tell everybody who um, I don't know who'd be listening slash watching our show wouldn't have known about or subscribed to or watch uh, listen to the PTUK. But uh, just in case there might be like one or two of the thousands of people listening out there that don't know who. Armando is. Um, tell us a little bit about you. Oh, well, uh, the guys over at P2K, I met them at uh, one of the air shows originally. I think it was Farnborough. Uh, somebody's going to correct me on that because they always Farnborough. do because we love the chat room. Yeah. So uh, Farnborough, I think I met them and then went out to a couple of the meetups. Next thing you know, those guys uh, took me on. I don't know why, but uh, we're all wondering that. Yeah. At the time, I was in my probably. 18th year of the U.S. Air Force, so I was uh, a crew member on the V-22 Ospreys, um, and everybody's pretty much wowed by that airplane, including myself, so it's always fun explaining the physics behind it, um, but I think they were just struggling for an American... No, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I, what I like about uh, uh, being on Pl- Plane Talk in UK is that uh, you guys all have very unique backgrounds, but... Uh, we, we tend to pick up the non-technical side of some of the same stories that we all do, you know, all the same podcasts kind of cover the same weekly news. But uh, for us, we, we take a more lighthearted approach and and uh, not get too technical because that's the purpose of our podcast. So, And it's always fun to talk about military and just bore everyone. It's, it's great to see as the military representative on that show how the uh, the watch figures go down as soon as we start talking about military. So. <laughs> I like that. Oh, you those people, you like, always get one for, extra for using yeah. microphone. I haven't. I'm not recording that one for some reason. No, oh, well, <laughs> Jeff and the record button. Yeah, I'm sorry. Say again, Steph. To make a separate track. I forgot what I was. Oh, um, no. There's a few people who live for that military segment. So you've got a, a couple dedicated. Yeah, I've met all for, four of them. Who stick around just for that point? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We the four of us have a meetup every once in a while. Exactly. <laughs> Time out. <laughs> I love the military side. It's great. I hear someone talking about gray stuff for a change. We're doing a uh, a technical timeout here while I set up another track for Armando. Okay. No. Oh, so Put him on the railway track. I was going to say, does that mean I have to run faster? <laughs> 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 I haven't been on a track in two years. So, oh, let's see. Go ahead and say something. Hello. Hello. Okay. Recording.
Excellent. All right. Now we can resume like nothing ever happened the magic of podcasting. So I forgot exactly what you were saying at the point that I told you to stop. Uh, a little bit of my background. Yeah. That, that pretty much sums it up. I spent 21 years in the air force. So a lot of military fun, military flying, not the usual stuff. Um, I don't pretend to know anything about fighter jets cause I don't. And those guys were always too cool for school. So, um, we wore our collars down, they wore their collars up, uh, and they always had better hair than us. So I don't know anything about fighter jets, but all the other stuff, uh, <laughs> a little familiar with <laughs> now for those who are, who are not watching the video, uh, captain Nick is running his fingers through <laughs> his hair. And Armando has none. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's why he could be a fighter pilot. Hey, Kenny what Rogers, can you put some of that hair on my head? <laughs> Actually, you've got a you've got a real go faster haircut. That's for sure. Armando. It is aerodynamic. <laughs> yeah. All right, and uh, so uh, you retired from the Air Force. Uh, what a couple last year or a year before? Yeah, believe it or not, it's been almost a year and a half. Wow. Okay. And uh, you were gracious enough to be there. At oh, yeah. I was representing the APG and uh, it was fantastic. Uh, thanks we, for the uh, invite. We put a pretty good dent on some of those kegs. We, it was at a brewery. So uh, I don't know. I wasn't drinking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, the bill had names on it. So I was able to run statistics. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was a great time. And so then you were like doing some, some flying. Yeah. So I took six months off and it was one of the things that, uh, my fellow peers that had retired from the military had said, make sure you take some time off to decompress and kind of learn how the real world works. So I did, I, I took six months off. I did a part-time job working on the ramp at one of my local airports and I was flying a King Air, uh, kind of contract right seat and flying skydivers. So um, Steph and I got a chance to go up a couple of times and I threw her out of the airplane. Yeah. So, I jumped out of Armando's airplane. Yeah. Did she have a parachute? She did. Oh, okay. Yeah. She did. Despite <laughs> our best efforts. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, that, that was great. Uh, Steph's been out to my drop zone and, uh, it's, it's challenging. Yeah. Isn't it, cool. Steph? Cool place up there. Tricky place for, for jumping and, and aircraft operations. We'll see that. It's an interesting, uh, runway. It is. It's a, an incredibly yeah. underpowered Cessna 182 with five people aboard into a, I don't know, what did you call it? About 2,500 foot grass strip? Yeah, that um, it's, um, I don't think it's all entirely straight or linear and there's definitely an incline on it. So Yeah, it would make a, a pretty good, you know, dog leg par mm -hmm. three, par four or something like yeah, that. That's, that's about right. Yeah. And so, then, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, that's, that's it. So I did that for six months, uh, got some flying back in the US. I, I did do some general aviation flying over there in the UK which was just amazing. I was doing aerobatics in an extra and uh, probably the best thing anybody could ever do is just fly a cub, little Piper cub over the British fields and a thousand feet, just looking at castles and churches and manor homes. It was just beautiful. There, there's nothing like that here in the U S and then uh, just got uh, picked up about six months ago for a part 135 small airline. Very cool. And that's what you have been doing the last couple of days then. Between the time that you saw Dr. Steph. That's right. Yeah. And, that was Monday. Yeah. yeah. Today's Wednesday. Days mm -hmm. are a blur. So I'll let you guys tell me what day it is. Yeah. It's Wednesday, I think, according to Dr. Steph. All right. Well, we couldn't, Thanks, we couldn't figure it out on Monday. That's the only reason I know what day it is. We had to <laughs> sit there and go, what day is today? Well, we did put a pretty good dent on that six pack of. Yeah, we did. Pernicious. Yeah. So, Amanda, how are, you, how, how are you enjoying flying that Pilatus? It's an amazing airplane. It, it, it's so easy to fly. 
And I think the the best way to sum it up is it it's a big airplane and a little airplane body. So we've got pretty much, you know, pretty advanced avionics. We've got incredible icing capability and you can be up into flight levels, you know, 25, 26,000 pressurized doing three, you know, 340, 350, and then it lands at 90. So every time that uh, you guys are behind us, they're on two, six, right. Um, I'm kind of flooring it all the way to the threshold. <laughs> and then it's, hi- it's highly encouraged that I'm off on the first taxiway. So it's, it's great at doing that. So Armando, uh, on the uh, Airline Pilot Guy show, we always ask the question, if uh, you could fly any air, um, airplane... Wait a minute. Um, oh, wait a minute. No, that's not our show. That's his show. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Don't answer that Excellent. question. Excellent. Um, all right. So now we uh, introduced you all to Armando, and I'm so happy that you were able to make it. Uh, wish it had been earlier, but you know that's the way it is in the uh, industry, right? Sometimes yeah, we, get... we did start today with a three-hour delay. Um, for got, maintenance, which got to go with the flow. Yeah, exactly. Oh, did you want to talk about that? Or maybe, maybe later in the show. No, just okay. The, that's <laughs> just the, that the rivalry continues between operations and maintenance. Oh boy, yeah, yeah that never happens. Yeah. Okay, well, we were just talking about. Um, well, John had just asked us about summer operations in Palm Springs, and about the uh, heat, one hundred and twenty-three degrees, and uh, our airliners kind of tested for these high temperatures before they're delivered to the airline. And I know that in my peripheral vision, I saw a couple of people's heads nodding. And so whoever that was, uh, go ahead and, and, uh, answer. No, I was just going to say that, uh, that's great to have you here. Armando. finally great to meet you. Yeah. It's good to see you. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of things here. Um, you know, obviously there's going to be a limit to uh, uh, temperature limit to operations, but it's it, it it really goes hand in hand. Well, first before before we go into that, we have to kind of talk about what 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 density altitude is. So, uh, really, density altitude is your altitude corrected for non-standard temperature. So everything in aviation, as far as, as performance calculations are concerned, are based off of a of a of a of a, of a datum point, and that's called um, ISA, so International Standard Atmosphere, which basically means uh, sea level and 59 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, 15 degrees Celsius. So, so everything kind of goes off of that. So that's that's kind of your starting point. Um, density altitude comes into the equation when, when say, you are, in fact, at, at, at sea level, but your temperature is no longer 59 degrees, but it's 80 degrees. The airplane does not know that. The airplane feels like it's higher than at sea level because as temperature goes up, the density of the air goes down. So that's what you're kind of correcting for there, your density altitude. Uh, now, um, I'm looking here at the flight planning and performance chart for the 767. And this kind of goes for just about every Boeing I've ever flown. Um, uh, there is a... a uh, Two limits. One is the environmental limit, and the other one's the assumed temperature limit. Now, that has to do with thrust, and, that, and it gets a little convoluted, and we don't really have time to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, lest uh, Captain Jeff start playing the rickets on me here. I'd never do that, um, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to talk about the environmental limit here, and 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 it's it's it, it it's kind of similar for 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 all uh, or uh, airliners here, and uh, your environmental limit at sea level goes. Uh, just above 50 degrees C. And that environmental limit line is inversely proportional to your pressure altitude. And your pressure altitude is your altitude uh, as it 
compares to standard atmosphere, which is 29.92 inches of of uh, on the mercury or 1013.2 millibars. That's another data point there. So the higher you are, the lower the temperature is to get you to that limit. So at sea level, the hottest it can be is 52 degrees C to take off in a 767. As you start going up, as your pressure altitude starts going up, the maximum allowable temperature to compensate for that density altitude uh, it starts going down. So um, that's kind of what I have on that, about 50 degrees at sea level. I don't I've know already got one thing to say, and that's hectopascals. Hectopascals, not millibars? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Other than that, it sounded great. I was surprised you just... He didn't care about the Fahrenheit <laughs> at, the, at the beginning of it. You yeah, did well, you're, you guys were American, We did say I'll earlier... 123 degrees Fahrenheit is like 53 Celsius. But Palm so. Springs is in uh, the United States. Uh, it's in, in America. So, mm. you know, you got to give us a break on that. Exactly. I don't know. He said inches. That's quite correct. But okay. then he said 1013 millibars. No. Hectopascals. Aren't they I, mean, I thought they are millibars. millibars. Yeah. Used to be. Used to it's be. the same thing, though, right? They're, They're the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Just like yeah. Celsius and centigrade, right? Uh, yes. All right. Exactly right. And isn't now maybe I'm misspeaking, but isn't uh, it really dependent upon other than obviously the performance of the engine and the wings, but also stopping capability of the aircraft? Well, know, because at certain temperatures, you start to get to that point that you, you get too close for the brake temperatures getting too hot. And I don't remember what the 88 was, so 90. I know we didn't take it out west very often during the summertime, except for like Denver. Um, we did go to Arizona and if be more specific, Tucson quite regularly, but was it, I think it was 120, wasn't it? Our maximum takeoff temp. I believe it's been so, a while yeah. since I looked at that. I think so. Yeah. yeah. yeah but you, know, you also have to remember that, that uh, the thrust available is directly proportional to air density and as temperature right. up, density goes down. And so the, the, uh, your, you know, accelerate stop distance really is based off on that temperature and density. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, you, it's, it's, of course, brake energy, brake energy, the, the, the capability of the brakes to absorb that brake energy is one of the factors that is, you know, accounted for in your, you know, go, no go calculation. And, and a lot of, I mean, it, and it's not just one type of aircraft. I mean, different aircraft have different types of performance, uh, pockets and limitations. So, you know, maybe a 737 can operate up to maybe, I don't know, 125, 130. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Maybe an Airbus has a higher temperature, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, maybe not on our old aircraft, Jeff, but uh, there are other aircraft. The RJ, it was pretty high, if I can remember correctly. It was, I think it was 120. I want to say 125. I'd have to go into the manuals, but it was pretty warm before you had to really get up there. I've, I've never seen like, well, and you're a number of years now. Work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in uniform. Sorry. 
Is that what I just sounded like just now? <laughs> yes, a little bit. Was, was that my plain tail? Cavulator. <laughs> Don't forget about the flux capacitor now. <laughs> the turbo and turbo and cavulator. Turbo and cavulator. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just what was going through my head when I was listening to all this going. Really? <laughs> I, I was following. I was, I was with you guys. Oh, no, there. I'm sorry. No, Go stuff. ahead. Please continue. That's a, that's a great example of what we don't do at PTUK. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's so wildly popular, actually. <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Yeah. Bad host. No, uh, like Dana was saying, it, it, every airplane is different. I know for the, for the Osprey, that was one of our go-no-go criteria also. The temperature uh, and density altitude was important with one engine inoperative because that thing can't... Uh, I mean, it can fly on one engine, but not very well, depending on the temperature. So I know for us, depending on the mission, it was uh, uh, one of the top consideration factors. Hmm. And uh, you guys being uh, Mad Dog drivers, or well, former Mad Dog drivers, I always thought it was, it was uh, I don't know if the 88 has it. I'm sure it does. It's a little, little feature called Dial-A-Flap. Uh-huh. Where you yeah. Actually, uh, how, so what, what's the deal with that? Ronco Dial-A-Flap actually used to call it in training. <laughs> yeah. Only on TV, though. Only on TV. Yeah. Bronco. So, uh, so we get a couple. It's a uh, John Jester, 50 degrees C for the CRJ, and then 55 for the 7.3 from yep. I-Hall boxes. Yeah. yeah so a, just uh, to get our, our percentage up a little bit higher. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's exactly what the graphs. It's, it's, it's the same for all Boeings, really. So it's 55 at sea level. That's the environmental. That's what the, uh, what the graph says here, 55 degrees at, at sea level. So to go on the Ronco dial a flap, uh, we had the ability to dial in a, a flap setting from zero to thirteen, and then fifteen to twenty-three to yeah. twenty-four. No, it's twenty-three. We can have variable flex yeah. flap settings uh, based so in on between, performance. Based on performance, so we could actually put in different flap settings, whereas on the Boeing, you have, what, flaps 1, 2, 5, 10, 15, 20, yeah, and 30, something like that. On the 7.3, on, 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 on the larger Boeings, you go from uh, uh, flaps 1, 5, 15, 20, 25, and 30, and then on the 7.4, you have 1, 5, 10, 20, 25, and 30, and then the uh, the 7.8-9 gets really convoluted. You have several um uh, flap gates that you don't have on even the 787-8 um, yeah i mean it's interesting but uh truth truth be told that that was a wonderful feature on the 88 and the 90s that you could actually have those different flap settings because it did allow for a lot of different performance calculations most common uh for takeoff were 11 uh some you know in later years they went to flaps 5 uh, performance um, they decided to, you know, up the speed a little bit, uh, and that was really second stage climb. And then uh, flaps 18 is a very common other uh, flap configuration on the 88 and 90 that we use quite regularly for takeoff landing. Flaps 28 uh, and flaps 40 quite common. Uh, 40 was just a little less fuel efficient. A lot of people, depending on what they liked, uh, would use flaps uh, 40 or 28. Um, and flaps 23 was really effective of bringing the aircraft to, uh, you know, if you're coming down and they give you, you know, a, a, the vulnerable uh, short approach, you can go to flaps 23 and the aircraft will come down quite nicely without ever you touching the speed brakes. And just like the uh, just like the seven seven two had a uh, a flap uh, forty gate right that uh, yeah was- but you would hardly ever use that one that yeah. was like um, like the space shuttle approach yeah. 
Um, you could hear the flight attendants actually rolling down the aisle and hitting the cockpit. <laughs> so it was not pretty. Yeah, it was uh, very rarely used. Uh, yeah. 30 was the standard uh, setting, uh, if I remember yeah. correctly. And and most, I mean, just about every Boeing airplane out there, 30 is. The the, the flap settings only go to 30. And just to, just to go above that 50% on the Dash 9, on the 78-9, you have flaps 1, 5, 10, 15, 17, 18, 20. Those are your takeoff flap settings. And your landing we just flap went about 50%. Yes. Awesome. And your landing flap setting 25 and 30, just like everybody <laughs> Boeing. Wow. How are you? Everybody enjoying the show? Everybody listening right now? Having a good time? Good stuff, huh? <laughs> what? Yeah. what about the alien in the bottom left hand corner? <laughs> Wake up. Completely deformed based on the amount of information that has been. Uh, oh, I didn't even notice. Injected with. Normal to me. Yeah, everybody's listening. You get Nick that has, has this huge bulbous head. My, my it looks like an alien from Mars. I can't cope anymore. And one of those big, giant headed uh, aliens. Uh, we we love first them. time he's ever been told he has a big head. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? We are past the time now uh, for uh, the point where we normally play the wonderful, the best part of the show, which is uh, the plain tales. And so without further ado, let's get to it. Oh, I had originally had this one opened, but uh, since I had to restart my computer, I had to close that window. So here we go. This week's installment of The Plain Tales. Holy, 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 holy understatements, Batman. The old pilot's plain tales. The Bat Bomb. Necessity is the mother of invention, and this proverb has been with us, at least in Latin, since at least 1519. No period is the imperative for invention more important than during war, where failure to innovate and adapt is likely to lead to ruin. So the annals of World War II are full of references to the weird and wacky suggestions that inventors came up with. The military of various countries pursued many of these strange ideas in the hope that they might give them a technological edge. Even if you didn't hear my earlier tales about the bouncing bomb, you will know that some of these weapons proved to be remarkably successful. Most, however, were something else entirely. A dentist from Irwin, Pennsylvania, once went on a trip to the Carlsbad Caverns National Park, home to many bats. He learned that bats were a. strong flyers, and B. Roosted before dawn, often in the eaves of houses. Putting these facts together with his views on the construction of buildings in Tokyo, mainly wooden, he devised a dastardly plan. The Bat Bomb. I suspect that his invention would have been relegated to a dusty corner of some enormous filing room near the incinerator, except for one fact. Our dentist knew the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. Having a direct line into the most famous government building in the United States ensured that his idea got a jolly good airing there. His letter reached the White House a few weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and in it he explained that the bat was the lowest form of animal life, and that, until now, reasons for its creation 
had remained unexplained. He went on to espouse that bats were created by God to await this hour, to play their part in the scheme to free human existence and to frustrate any attempt of those who dare desecrate our way of life. This part of God's, or perhaps Darwin's, great plan apparently needed no more explanation. And despite feeling the need to explain that, this man is not a nut. It sounds like a perfectly wild idea, but is worth looking into. The President personally approved the development of the dentist's idea. With presidential authorization in hand, the dentist assembled workers for the project. These included Von Bloker and his assistant, Jack Koofer, a pair of bat lovers, a lobster fisherman, a weightlifter, an actor, an ex-gangster, and a former hotel manager, amongst others. Together, they set about developing the tooth puller's invention. The concept revolved around the bat's natural instinct to huddle in the rafters of buildings once the sun came up. If thousands of bats could be dropped over Tokyo, each wearing a tiny incendiary device combined with a timer, then as dawn came, they would hide in the dark corners of the highly flammable Japanese houses, offices and factories, waiting for the moment to set them alight, accompanied by the aroma of grilled bat. How this was an improvement on the already well-established conventional incendiary bomb wasn't made entirely clear, but the persuasive orthodontist submission stated, a proposal designed to frighten, demoralise and excite the prejudices of the people of the Japanese Empire, outlining what he called a practical, inexpensive and effective plan. He theorised that bombers could carry millions of the winged firestarters to their targets. The government's reaction to the idea perhaps wasn't surprising, since it was already researching other strange projects, like pigeon-controlled missiles and such. In the heat of wartime, anything that sounded even halfway feasible was at least taken under advisement. With a green light to proceed, most of the team enlisted in the Air Force, gaining acting ranks, which gave them an air of authority. To be fair, our tooth-puller also had some experts on board. The bat-lovers were mammologists, and Harvard chemist Dr. Theodore Pfizer, the inventor of napalm, would join the team. They started to tackle the practical problems that faced the development of the bat bomb. The bats needed to be chilled into hibernation so that they could be flown to the target area. Hundreds, if not thousands of bats, had to be fitted with a tiny bomb which could be accurately timed to go off at the right moment. They had to be delivered to the city without injury so that they could disperse and fly to places of concealment where they would give their lives in the cause of freedom. The idea of killing millions of bats wouldn't fly very far today, 
but the team rationalised the loss to nature, saying that a million bat-bombs could save a million lives. After rigorously testing several species, the project crew settled on the Mexican free-tailed bat to carry their incendiaries. Largely concentrated in New Mexico and Texas, the free-tailed bat population numbered well over 50 million, and nearly 9 million of them were thought to reside in the Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico. Since the caverns were overseen by the United States Park Service, they had to receive special permission to venture into the caves and harvest large batches of the creatures. But after all, there was a war on. Tests revealed that these tiny creatures, weighing only half an ounce, about 14 grams, could carry more than their own body weight in payload, so tiny tubes made of cellulose and filled with napalm were glued to their fronts. They planned to deliver these teensy-weensy warriors in a hollow, bomb-shaped carrier, about five feet long and two and a half feet in diameter. That's one and a half by 0.75 metres. Inside were 26 trays of bats, loaded like eggs in a crate, until the device was full with over a thousand animals. When dropped, the bomb would fall to around 4,000 feet, when a parachute would deploy, slowing the descent, and then the sides would be blown off, releasing the agile arsonists to set the city below alight. Comparisons with conventional incendiary bombs were waved aside with the assurance that a conventional attack might start 400 ground fires, whereas the bat bombs could ignite nearly 4,800, a 12-fold increase. The development of this novel weapon didn't go entirely smoothly. During a less-than-spectacular trial at Muroc Lake in California, 6,000 bats were deployed in a number of bombs. Carrying dummy incendiary devices, some of the bats failed to wake from hibernation and slept their way to destruction, while others chose to fly away into the sunset, never to be seen again. What was worse, at the Carlsbad Army Airfield, half a dozen fully armed bats escaped and roosted under a fuel tank. Unable to tell Japanese military equipment from that owned by the U.S. Army, the bats did their duty and incinerated the test-range buildings, watchtowers and barracks. Undeterred, the bat-bomb team were buoyed up by the apparent effectiveness of the weapon, and although the Air Force had by now washed their hands of the bat guano and the project, the Marines took it forward as Project X-Ray, dropping the weapon onto a mock-up known as the Japanese Village at the Marine Air Station El Centro in California. Observers were somewhat impressed, and the report that followed stated, A reasonable number of destructive fires can be started in spite of the extremely small size of the units. The main advantage of the units would seem to be their placement within the enemy structures without the knowledge of the householder or fire watchers, 
thus allowing the fire to establish itself before being discovered. More tests were planned, but finally Fleet Admiral Ernest King put a stop to it, when costs topped $2 million and the projected combat-ready date had gone back to mid-1945. Our inventive dentist complained that a general had told him that funding for the Bat-Bomb was going elsewhere. It's the silliest nonsense you ever heard of, he said. That nonsense was the atomic bomb research, then underway at Los Alamos. The United States didn't have a monopoly on strange wartime ideas. An adventurous English journalist, Edward Pike, who had been a war correspondent during the First World War and interned by the Germans, came up with an idea to construct aircraft carriers out of ice. At the time of his idea, he was in the United States during World War II, helping to organize the production of M-29 Weasels, a tracked vehicle built for operations in snow by Studebaker. A friend of Lord Mountbatten, the chief of combined operations, he sent his proposal via diplomatic bag for Mountbatten's eyes only, who in turn passed it on to Churchill, who sounded enthusiastic about it. Materials needed for the construction of conventional aircraft carriers, particularly steel and aluminium, were in short supply. So Pike suggested an enormous block of frozen ice, either a natural iceberg or a manufactured one that could be constructed. This would need only 1% of the energy required to build a metal one. The idea was actually a recurring one. In 1940, an idea for an ice island was circulated around the Admiralty, but was treated as a joke by the officers there, who circulated the memorandum that gathered even more caustic comments. The project would have been abandoned had it not been for the creation of piecrete, a mixture of wood pulp and water, which, when frozen, was stronger than plain ice and much slower to melt. Pike may well have got the idea from the Inuit sledges made from ice and reinforced with moss. Secret tests were made in the frozen meat lockers under Smithfield Market in London, and a decision made to build a large-scale model at Jasper National Park in Canada. This small prototype, only 60 by 30 feet, that's 18 by 9 metres, weighed 1,000 tonnes and was constructed and kept frozen by a little one-horsepower motor. The Canadians were confident about constructing a vessel for 1944 and the necessary materials were available to them in the form of 3,000 tonnes of wood pulp 25,000 tonnes of fibreboard insulation, 35,000 tonnes of timber, and 10,000 tonnes of steel. Initially, the cost was estimated at £700,000 sterling each, but then the problem of cold flow, the tendency of the ice to slowly deform, became apparent, and the design continually changed to include more insulation, cooling infrastructure and steel reinforcement. 
with the cost estimates now approaching £2.5 million, the Navy insisting on a raft of additional requirements, projections for completed ships began to move far into the future. In addition, with the increase in resources needed, it became apparent that conventional carriers were going to be considerably cheaper. The project was shelved, but not before a demonstration was made of Pycrete's strength at the 1943 Quebec Conference, with Churchill and Roosevelt observing. Lord Mountbatten entered the project meeting with two blocks and placed them on the ground. One was a normal ice block, and the other was Pycrete. He drew his service pistol and shot at the first block, which shattered and splintered. Next, he fired at the Pycrete to give an idea of the strength and resistance of the material. The bullet ricocheted off the block and buzzed around their legs like an angry bee, grazing the trousers of Admiral King and finally ending up embedded in the wall. Perhaps animals were the answer after all. Not bats this time, but the aforementioned pigeons. Project Pigeon used the bat bomb. Uh, no, no, not that bat bomb. The anti-shipping missile N2 bat. The missile was basically a small glider with wings and tail surfaces with a warhead built into the centre. Dropped by a bomber, it would glide into a fleet and hopefully sink enemy ships. The biggest problem was guidance. Worry not. Trained through associative learning processes, between one and three pigeons would be stationed in front of lenses mounted in the nose of the glider. The birds were trained to recognise a target, and so long as it remained in the centre of their windows, they didn't have to do anything. If it moved to one side, however, they would peck at the edges of their screens, which then activated the flying controls to bring the target back into the centre, keeping the missile on course. The inventor, animal behaviourist Murray Skinner, was given $25,000 by the National Defence Research Committee to develop his ideas. Despite finding pigeon guided missiles both eccentric and impractical, Skinner, who had some success with the training, complained that the problem was that no one would take him seriously, and it was cancelled in 1944. However, some ideas never die, and it was revived by the Navy in 1948 as Project Orcon. Although Orcon lingered on for several years, with a coup of relief, the pigeons were superseded by electronic guidance systems in 1953. There were plenty of other dubious weapon ideas out there, including the Fugo hydrogen balloon bombs, launched by the Japanese as the very first intercontinental weapons. 9,300 of these firebombs were launched to float across the Pacific at altitudes above 30,000 feet in the prevailing winter jet streams. They used an automatic system to discard ballast if they flew too low or vent gas if they were too high. 
After three days of flight, it was estimated that they would be over the United States, and a timer released the weapon, either a high explosive or an incendiary bomb. The balloon would then self-destruct. There was also a plan suggested to use these balloons to deploy biological weapons such as anthrax, but the Emperor Hirohito would not allow such use. Out of the thousands deployed, they caused only six deaths, all from inquisitive people who found balloons which had malfunctioned and landed, fiddling with them until they exploded. A final weapon worth mentioning was the Nazi sun gun. In World War II, a group of German scientists had the idea of creating a superweapon that could burn entire cities or boil an ocean. All they had to do was launch a huge reflector made of metallic sodium with an area of over three square miles, that's around nine square kilometers, and use it to focus the heat of the sun onto their enemies. After being questioned by American officers at the end of the war, the Germans claimed that had the war only lasted another 50 or 100 years, they would undoubtedly have been able to win. Wow, another great installment of the Plain Tales. What'd you think of that one, Steph? Uh, the use of Mac was interesting, definitely. I've never uh, heard that before. And um, I yeah. thought the pigeons were even better. I mean, you could actually replace us with pilots with pigeons. You just put them in the windshield and, you know, <laughs> they can peck to the left or peck to the right, depending on how we're doing. Uh, no, I just love some of the ideas that uh, people came up with. It's, uh, some of them were obviously ludicrous, but of course um, some of them turned out to be fantastic and we just have to look at uh, Radar, which uh, was really uh, poo-pooed by uh, a lot of the um, hierarchy uh, in the military um, and it proved to be very hard to develop um, a system that actually worked uh, um they the inventor had to work extremely hard to get his ideas accepted of course it turned out to be a fantastic boon to the military in the end but uh, when it was first uh, proposed and uh, all the trials were attempted it was a, a real uphill push for them but uh, they got it through in the end they made it work but others not quite so sensible Hey, Nick, one of, one of my favorite things to do over there in the UK was to fly out towards uh, Orford Ness near Lostov. Wasn't that one of the first radar sites? It was at... Uh, uh, it may well be. I'm not familiar with it, but uh, you was it one of the chain um, sites? I believe so, yeah. But yeah. The, uh, if you if you go out there and uh, you can still see the, the buildings and the elephant cage and a lot of the uh, the structures are still standing from one of the first radar sites. Yeah. Yeah, excuse me. Been eating peanuts. Um, yeah, the chain was amazing, but it uh, and they had enormous aerials that they required, and they literally linked all the way around the uh, south coast. Uh, and it's amazing that uh, Germany didn't pay more attention to them and uh, try and knock them out more frequently. But um, yeah, a remarkable uh, invention. Yeah, 
And I was uh, I was reading here about the uh, about the piecrete, which I thought was it's just fantastic stuff. At uh, how during the war they they actually made uh, they're looking at making ships out of this stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, wow, interesting. Okay, well, I look forward to the next installment. What what are we going to talk about next week, Nick? Oh, um, that, that, yeah, that's flying clothing. Oh, oh. <laughs> or flying clothing optional. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> of. Stuff no, knew exactly I, I, right. I, I knew exactly <laughs> where you were going with that one, Jeff. It's like, yeah, yeah. Some parachute jumpers who uh, like to go in the all together, but uh, yeah, that that's definitely happened. <laughs> not not me personally, but I don't think it's a particularly good look because air has a you know high speed air has a funny way to distort the body, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Thanks it's for that true. mental image. <laughs> Makes the bits flap around. It. It's, not, it's not any better. The, uh, the spoilers, the run events that are organized in a similar vein. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh yeah. You'd think it'd be yeah. sexy. For some reason that came wrong. up in conversation with me or like with someone else earlier today. And I don't know why. So we'll just move away from the, the naked run. I've seen the naked bicyclists in uh, Vancouver, but, uh, well, speaking of naked men, um, Armando, during the uh, plane tales, uh, went to, I thought he was going to get a suitcase so he could change. You can see him now on the video out of uniform. And uh, then he wasn't here for a while. So I thought I better go up here and see what he's doing. And uh, he had changed up up there, you know, in full view of my neighbors. And uh, I said, well, that's okay. They're probably used to seeing naked men walking around the neighborhood. (laughs) To which I said, huh? Yeah. I said, well, trust me, you don't want to know. Well, yeah, both of the ring cameras were moving in my direction as I was changing. It was weird. <laughs> no way. What's going on? Well, as soon as I changed my shirt, it was, it was odd. Somebody handed me a nice cold beverage. <laughs> there was a neighbor, actually. Her, her name's Jane. Yeah. And she was saying to her husband, hey, Jane, look, there's a much better looking man out there now with no clothes. That must, that must be his son. <laughs> yeah, it must be. Don't worry. We'll, we'll play out the video next week. Yeah. There you go. Excellent. All right. Well, if you're a if you're a Patreon a patron uh, Patreon um, member, you, know, you get to see all that video uncut, bonus material. Yes, just kidding. All right, uh, let's continue with our feedback. Captain Renato says, "Dear team, how are you all? I was just looking at some new deliveries of seven six seven Fs for FedEx, and I noticed that they didn't seem to have winglets on them. On the other hand, it seems that many UPS seven six sevens have it." I learned that winglets save winglets save fuel. Although in the case of the 767, you have to pay extra bucks due to a mod after manufacture. Anyway, some people say that FedEx has ramp space issues with the winglet, and most of their flights with the 767 are short haul. So the drawbacks outweigh the benefits. Just some food for thought. Keep up with this great show. Thank you, Captain Renato from Brazil. And um, you know, I wish we had somebody on that had some knowledge about 767s and freight operations. I don't know. Yeah, me too. But we're going to have to. Uh, we'll have to tackle that one next week when he comes back. Um, uh, <laughs> Wait a minute. Just uh, <laughs> no. The um, the seven six. Oh yeah. The, he, he's right. I mean, you're right, Renato. The uh, the seven sixty seven is not produced with the winglet mod uh, out of the factory. I, in fact, the winglet mod is. Uh, Obviously, you know, it's, it's a modification done uh, afterwards. Um, the the winglets, uh, eleven feet tall, they add about ten feet of wingspan to the seven sixty seven. Where uh, uh, you're just your regular, you know, run of the mill seven six. It's got one hundred fifty six uh, feet of wingspan. Well, one hundred sixty six feet, one inch. 
of wingspan and then with the uh with the winglet mod that goes up to 167 feet um 166 11 inches um and it's 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 an interesting uh it's an interesting mod because not only are you are you putting the winglets at the tip of the wings there but they also have to do quite a bit of strengthening structural strengthening to the wing and uh, another interesting thing is i remember when when uh the mod first came out um uh, land chile at the time who we used to fly for uh, before it was one of the first airlines uh to actually have this mod done to their air to their aircraft and so um i did some of the first uh test flights after the the mod the, the modifications were, were were done and one of the systems that we would check was the functionality of the speed brake the automatic speed brake uh, uh lever has well it's not automatic usually only on landing but in flight when you have these winglets installed uh there is a detent put at the 50 percent mark you know the 50 percent of the of the of the travel range of this lever here and one of the tests you do is with an engineer on board obviously um you'll pitch the airplane over to 300 knots and then the engineer will go into the cmc the central maintenance computer and he'll change some numbers in there and you'll pitch over to 320 knots and at 321 knots the lever should go from fully deployed from speed from speed brake spoiler fully deployed in flight to 50%. And uh, the reason behind that the engineer was telling us because because the the way the airflow and the interaction between the spoiler panels themselves and the flow patterns cordwise the flow patterns cordwise along the wing with the new winglet installed that it, it changes it somehow. So that's one of the things that we have to check and you know make sure that those spoilers do go back to fifty percent. Uh, the airplane's a lot cleaner with winglets, of course. You know, by that I mean it that it, uh, it's, it's a lot sleeker. It takes a lot more to decelerate, and the landing's a little tricky at first when you're not used to it because the 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 wing is so clean that you tend to linger in ground effect a little bit longer if you allow it. So you kind of have to be a bit more, um, I guess, try to land the airplane more positively than you would with an airplane without winglets. But, um, but you know, it's a great mod. It's uh, it, it saves up, saves a lot of fuel. And uh, uh, I, I think that uh, most uh, seven sixes uh, are going towards uh, having those winglets installed. In fact, uh, uh a few of ours have uh, left not so long ago to have that very mod uh, uh, done on them. So uh, yeah, it, uh, it saves a lot of money. I've told the story here on the show before um, back in the, I guess the nineties. Yeah. We uh, at Acme had four of our 727s modified with winglets and no other 727 had ever had the, as far as I know, had that modification and it was kind of fun because we fly into places and like Rick with the, uh, dream lifter, you know, it would, it would, uh, create a lot of attention and they'd ask about, Hey, well, I've never seen the winglets on that. You know, how does that work? How, how does it fly? Blah, blah, blah. So you kind of felt like a minor celebrity when, when you're coming in with the winglets. Well, uh, I think they ended up, uh, making it like 5%, uh, fuel, more fuel efficient, which was significant, and but uh, the airline decided to take them off when Boeing said, "Hey, we noticed that you have these winglets on your 727s, and we didn't 
put them on your airplane. And uh, we just wanted to let you know that um, if you keep them on, uh, it's going to val- uh, invalidate the uh, warranty. So really? they came uh, off. Mean is. Yeah. So we ended up because Oops. it was a third party or third whatever um, company that put, put those on. I guess on. maybe Valsan, it's not a specifically authorized i no. mean to, to, to do to have well, oh yeah i mean but to, to to make a a a modification of that kind you need you need what's called a supplemental tax certificate yeah and sure. uh and uh, you need to you know you need to there's a testing uh program to it there's a validation program to it and there's you know you can't just you can't just slap winglets because it makes it look like it goes faster so it's uh it's 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 quite a lengthy process <laughs> and it does of course i mean it makes it look cooler too but yeah. but there, it's it's quite it's quite the lengthy process it's yeah. not like you know let's 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 uh let's i'm not sure what all the details the, were so you know if they didn't have the, the it seems to me that they must have had a supplemental certificate oh, the, you, on you it, have so. to you have to yeah absolutely. so uh, i don't know I, you know i just wonder what the uh, the discord there was between Boeing and whoever was doing the yeah, I modification think there was pub- I got the there was probably more to it than we you know, yeah, were led it, on yeah, to. It, it sounds yeah. a little politicky. But maybe. it was kind of fun though. Yeah, it was the only airplane that I've flown, I think. Yeah. The only airplane I've flown that had uh winglets on it. And probably will hmm. be the only one I ever fly <laughs> with. Uh well, yeah, who knows? Never yeah. say never. Never say never. Yeah. Mm-mm. So uh well, thank you, uh, Renato, for the question about the 767 winglets. And thank you, Rick, for answering it very competently. Uh, let's keep moving on here. We're running out of time. Uh, Mitchell says, uh, hey, guys and gal, I'm a, I'm in a bit of a weird situation. wondering if any of y'all had had a similar experience. I'm a former E-175 captain at a regional airline. I finally landed my dream job with an airline based in Fort Lauderdale that flies yellow airplanes. Yes, very bright yellow Uh airplanes. Uh I spent two and a half months in training. Then all this COVID stuff happened. In my last month at the regional, I burned all my sick time and basically I had the last month off. I've been out of training at my new airline for over a month now. And it's been probably about a month and a half now uh, and am uh, awaiting IOE. I'm wondering, how can I stay fresh? I haven't flown a jet since February. I've been trying to stay current with flows on the paper chart, but it's not the same. In the meantime, I've been fortunate enough to snag another job in the field that I majored in in college. Any input is appreciated. And again, this is Mitchell. And as far as staying fresh, I would direct your question to Hillel because he's the one that knows all about staying fresh because it seems like he's always in the shower. (laughs) But maybe, Um, but do bam. Come on. Yeah. yeah I, I, it was, Give me some love. I, I like, there we go. Thank you. I liked it. <laughs> yeah. I left. So, I got myself on mute, but I left. <laughs> sure you did. <laughs> it's on the recorded track. I should go back and listen. Okay. Uh, Mitch, I mean, I, what I would do is probably, um, since you, since you converted from an E-175 to, uh, to an Airbus product, I would probably go back and if you have access to it, um, go back through the, uh, through the systems, uh, systems school, if you can. Um, uh, I but, know when I, when I was, when I was, uh, preparing to uh to do the uh the oral on the seven six a little while ago um i went on uh on youtube and looked up um uh, syst- uh systems uh uh you know breakdown of the systems on the seven six and actually a lot of the a lot of the uh a lot of that system stuff that you get on the company provided curriculum is 
on 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 YouTube, albeit a little dated, the one that I was the, the one that I went through. So if you want to keep, you know, just keep a little sharp on systems, kind of I would I, I would do that. But as far as the flying is concerned, um, I don't know, man. I mean, I'm sure that the airline's not going to let you go non-current, so I'm sure you're going to have to go to the box at some point and make sure that do do your three takeoffs and landings, make sure that you don't go non-current, so you, you can indeed, you know, in fact, go to IOE uh, initial operating experience. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what I would do. It's it, it tough, isn't it? Sorry, Danny, go ahead. No, no, go right ahead. I was just going to say that, uh, you know, despite the fact that it seems a bit noddy, um, a decent flight simulation, uh, system, uh, you know, uh, whether you buy one, uh, that is cheap and cheerful or one that's really sophisticated can replicate a lot of the aircraft, um, systems and emergencies. Uh, and uh, you can do it at home on your PC. And I know in the early days on the Airbus, uh, um, particularly when I was coming up with a simulator session that I knew we were going to be doing uh, particular approaches into a particular airport, I used to uh, use uh, Microsoft Flight Sim and practice those approaches uh, using the real plates uh, and just, you know, just to get myself familiar again with the instrumentation, how it all works, selections to make, where it worked. Um, so that's one way. Uh, and certainly in my earlier days of flying, uh, if ever I was off for a while, I'd just go back to the cardboard cockpit uh, and sit there and just quietly uh, dream my way through scenarios and uh, procedures and run checklists and things just to get the word music uh, right again so that I didn't feel quite so out of place when I climbed on the flight deck. But between you and me, there's there's no real way to uh, to do it other than get into a simulator or mm. uh, go for a flight. And if your company is good, they'll give you uh, some work to run you up. They're not going to just dump you in there and expect you to be at 100% straight away. Um, at least I, I hope that would be the case. That would not be the case here. By the way, um, I'm not sure if they have, and you hit it right on the head, Nick, it, the training center, if they have paper tigers or even a computer-assisted procedures trainer um, available that you can hop into, uh, certainly I would go ahead and get in there and flip switches. Uh, Rick, what he said about uh, trying to um, go ahead and, and say the system's you know, nowadays the systems are important, but not nearly as important as they used to be. So being familiar with it is great. Uh, however, it, I think what you're asking is the flying skills. Mm. Um, and so, Mitchell, I really think that uh, what Nick touched upon a little bit which was the, you know, using Microsoft Flight Simulator specifically with a 320. Uh, if you can get go ahead and, and use that if you can't get access to any of the training programs at, at your sim center. Uh, you know, the, the, the Paper Tiger or a uh, CAPT, Computer Assisted Procedure Trainer, um, then that would be a, a good alternate. But there's really no other way that I can think of uh, beyond what, what the, these guys have covered already. Yeah, and that's coming from the training world. I mean, that's, you know, that's what, what my specialty was. And we, you know, always allowed the students to come in and use Paper Tiger and, and the Procedures Trainers whenever they wanted to. Yeah, I would probably add that the training department also knows that all of all of your peers are in the same boat. So everybody that's awaiting IOE, um, not, you know, we all want to be the best that we can be, especially when we're jumping into the cockpit. But uh, but they should be understanding also in that you've had this time off. It's a little bit of a weird time, and 
and uh, you, you know, you may be, need a little bit extra refresher training too. So, and there's also a great uh, A320 specific podcast out there that is pretty technical. And now what's, they, I can't, I can't, I always forget the name of it. It's about um, A320s. It's a podcast. Um, oh yeah. I think it's the A320 podcast. Oh, the A320 podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the A320 podcast. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Um, yeah. So those guys, you know, they, they pull out a one chapter or they'll put out a section of a chapter in the aircraft book and kind of cover it. So that's another way, another podcast, now that you have some extra time, we all have some extra time to, uh, you know, get, get into systems. I almost bid for the A320 specifically so that I could use the A320 podcasts materials. Just oh, kidding. Man. Of course. <laughs> training for, to, to take over this ship? As, as far as you know, that's true. That's true. Well, there, there's, there's, there's a niche right there, Jeff. Why don't we start the 717 podcast? Yeah, there you go. The seven one. No, thank you. I already have enough to do. <laughs> Brought to you by the Smithsonian. <laughs> yeah, not, not saying you can only get that on beach of mine. Shut up. All right. Uh, let's see. How much more time do we have, Liz? Uh, not much. It's like ten oh, minutes. Oh shoot! Yeah. I can't believe this. I know. Every time we run out of time. Look at all these things she has in. I've the- had like a beer and a half. I could take a stab at answering the gravity question again too. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. <laughs> you wanted to get technical. Which, which, and which uh, messy. Oh, is it? That was 16? number 16. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Take it, Steph. Yep. This is from Stan. He said, physicist Jeff had a very interesting explanation of centrifugal force, rocket launches, normal force, and weight on different planets. But I am no closer to understanding the essence of what causes gravity. Um, yeah, and that was a pretty technical, um, video that we watched, um, from, from the physicist, um, but I'm going to explain like the, the simplest way that I learned it. Um, cause I really don't know that we touched on it a whole bunch and, and I forget exactly what the initial question was, but I guess it's just really, what is it that causes gravity? So, um, there's two, two guys I'm thinking of from, from history. One is Einstein and the other one is a little bit further back, Newton. Um, and Einstein, the way he describes it is, you know, you put together time and space and you think of it as like a fabric and as things come, things move through it, it changes how that fabric it's like if you had a a sheet stretched out and you put a ball on top of it it's going to push down on it right so if you have two objects together they can pull each other closer into into that fabric um that's a little bit conceptual and hard to hard to figure out um but basically what it comes down to is mass right Armando's laughing at me i think (laughs) um so you get two two objects that have any weight to it, any mass to it, and they're going to exert a force on each other because of all that stuff that Einstein talked about. But you can kind of put that aside for a moment. Um, but the larger the object is, the more it's going to have a pull on a smaller object. So that's why things that are enormous, so planets, you know, um, other celestial bodies, uh, stars, our sun, um, can exert a force strong enough to hold things to it or attract things to it such that things will stay in its its orbit. Um, you know, as a, if you think of smaller things, so like a person or like uh, any object I have here on my desk, yeah, there's a gravitational pull that comes from those things, but it's so tiny, you can almost consider it to be negligible. And I think that's the best way I've under, ever understood gravity. So there's, there's all kinds of equations too, if you wanted to get into that, but that really wasn't his question. I think Armando's probably feeling a little bit of a gravitational 
increase and pull. That's magnetic, actually, very, I think. Oh, well, because of my mass, uh, I, I create a much larger. Yeah, there's a larger body oh, yeah. to my left. So that's, does that mean if I spin <laughs> clockwise, should I go away from Jeff or will I get closer to Jeff? I don't know. Well, it depends, yeah. depends what hemisphere you're in. So. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. exactly. You wise guys. <laughs> so I don't anyway, know. Anyway, shouldn't I, you one know, of you been spinning at least? <laughs> Yes, Steph, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, listening to that, I was I was actually similarly confused by everything that physicist Jeff said, even though he got into some pretty technical stuff, because that wasn't really my basic understanding of gravity, but having not, you know, cracked a book on physics I stuff in a long time, I wanted to. physicists do that on purpose, just to kind of keep them up confuse above, us. you know, where we are way down here. You know, I bet yeah. our friend <laughs> Stefan up in Syracuse would be able to explain this and make it clear as day, because <clears throat> he's so well... Um, so well, what's the word I want to use? Eloquent in his he's words. Eloquent? He's very, very well versed in it all. Obviously, it's what his specialty is, but he's eloquent with his words and easy, easy to explain things. And that's what I found out about him when I was uh, met with him in Syracuse. So, Dana, uh, I love you, man. Uh, perfect segue into item 11. APG crew. Thank you for mentioning the Turbo Incabulator on your show. For a number of years now, remember that little clip that I played? To bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply. Anyway, that's what that guy's talking about, the Turbo Incabulator. He said, I can't believe I haven't come across this amazing device. Apparently already invented in the 1940s. It completely revolutionizes our gravimetric detectors by eliminating transverse D inductance and thus magnetometric libations. Obviously, this boosts the magneto reluctance and capacitive detractance in the arms. As a result, it has the potential to scale up the detector's gravimagnetic range proportionally to the inversive current in the unilateral phase detector detractors. Excuse me. I decided to install this encabulator as soon as possible. And thus, just bought my first post-COVID Acme airline ticket to the observatory. Best, Stefan. So, wow, that was just perfect that you happened to mention Stefan uh, up there at uh, Syracuse, who is also a professor, doctor of uh, physics. And he says, "P.S. Keep up the show, and I don't take this e and don't take this email too seriously." What do you mean? We're taking it seriously. Mm. About the only true statement in here is about the first post-COVID Acme airline ticket. And then again, even Acme is a fake name. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> so well, basically I'm, nothing. I'm just glad that you read that and not me because that, you know what? Yeah, that, was a, that was a tongue twister. I wish I had pre-read this because as I started reading it, I realized that I probably should have looked at it before I just started Doing that. Hey, you did great. No, no, that was good. Well, was, yeah. I don't know if it was an no, accident. I, I find looking at something when I'm trying to read it is pretty good idea. Yeah, it is. It, I tend to yeah. read better that way when yeah. I'm actually looking at it. Thank you. Very sensible, Jack. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a sensible person. <laughs> Simple and sensible. Um, no matter what I do, doesn't matter. I always sound like an idiot. No, you don't. <laughs> <after> you <read laughs> it. That is not true. Hey, um, so are we, I think we're. We're pretty much at the end, are we? Darn it. We're we have close, all yeah. this great yeah. feedback that we didn't get to. Again, uh, our producer director, Liz, in Toronto in the control room, uh, she's always very, very optimistic. But um, I'm glad that we were able to cover what we did. And, uh, of course, you know that when we don't cover it on this show, we move it to the next. So uh, 
We look forward to covering all this great stuff. And if you want to send us some more and, you know, just add on to the big pile, uh, head it over to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you want to learn more about the show, you can go to our website, airlinepilotguy.com. And uh, we're also on the social meds. We are. You can head over to twitter.com. We are at APG crew. You can use that same handle on Instagram. Um, Twitter is probably a great place to find out about when we'll be recording the show live or if we make um, kind of last minute changes like we did yesterday. I appreciate you all moving over a day to, to join us today. And you can also find us facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Please join the community there. We'll see you on the social meets. All right. Uh, Armando, I know you use the uh, restroom facilities here in the, um, the studio level of the uh, APG H- HQ building. Uh, did you see Hillel in there? Do you know if he's anywhere around? Oh, I just heard a voice, so I wasn't going to go near it. All right, let me turn up yeah. the uh, volume of the uh, hidden microphone there. In the okay. Hillel, Hillel, time for the whatever it's okay, called Slack. But I'm wet. <laughs> that wasn't very good. All right, well. Why don't you come over here and tell us about Slack? APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Now you can head back to your favorite place. <laughs> excited about that it's the little things that you make notice us your happy. soap supplies dwindling yeah us. i did notice that actually watch off your toilet paper now too <laughs> no yeah <laughs> you, use that, that soap in the covid environment yes yeah. good point all right well with that i think it's now time for us to end the show thanks uh, again for everybody that has joined us in our live chat room. We do appreciate you. We love you. We love all of you who are listening to our show, participating in it, or just listen to it. And uh, especially our financial supporters, our our patrons and our Coffee Fun Cadre, Coffee Bar Club folks. Thank you very much for your support. And until, oh, and we should not forget to mention our control room producer, director in Toronto, Liz Piper. A big round of applause for Liz. Thank you Great. very much. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. See you next week. Cheers, everybody. Take care of yourselves and take care of others. Bye-bye. So long. Good day. Two? She says twalk. T-W-O-K, that's how you pronounce it. Okay. Liz, you should just pop on and actually give us like an audio pronunciation because we're not Canadian. We don't know. I, I recognize the word like in written form, but I just twonk. actually don't know how it's pronounced. So what do you look like when you got your twock in hand? Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> Can't hear you. Go ahead. You have to be in the stream. You ha- to- yeah, you have to. 
here. Here we go. I'm gonna I, add her. It did. Now you there are. You it's a toque. A toque. Yeah, then why did you say T-W-O-K? Because it's two, like the number two. two. K at the end. No, but if you say two W okay, that's twalk. That's definitely not how it's pronounced. It's like it's like chefs chefs wear it too. And what I still I it's a hat that you wear in the winter. What's the point of his? But what's the point of his? A wool cap. Post. What is he trying to say? He's saying it's cold in Canada. Even it's a woolly hat. Oh, okay, right. I thought a toque was a thing that chefs wear. Yes, also that. Okay. Chefs wear a woolly hat. I never knew that. No, they don't wear woolly hats. <laughs> Unless they're in Russia or Siberia or something like that. I wish I had my chef hat here. It's up on the boat. I put it on for you. There you and go. And if you're in the south, it's a toboggan, even though that's a sled. A toboggan? Oh. A toboggan. What is a toboggan? You people are weird. I know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what they call it. Okay. Because sure. I'm like, oh, the sled? And they're like, no, with the hat on my head. I'm like, what? Okay. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline high guy I fly I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly, oh, man, oh Airline 